See, so if they come to me, well, Fuller, if you really don't want to deal with racism and be happy and get all kind of benefits, which he mentioned benefits, yes, and all yes, like sir. that, and go on and live your life, mm-hmm. then, Fuller, you've got to become a homosexual. And then I say, no, because that's a part of their plot. Mm-hmm. That's not a part of mine. Mm. You know, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. You know, yeah, I know about the benefits that go with that. I've seen it. Mm. But are they really benefits? You know, what what does it? And I have this written in some of my notes. Mm. What does it matter to gain the whole world and have to give up your gender? Palm Springs in the Coachella Valley has been known as a mecca of the gay community for decades. The city made headlines five years ago when it elected the first entirely LGBTQ city council in the country. And the mayor, Lisa Middleton, is the first transgender mayor in California. So the LGBTQ plus community has deep, well-established roots there. Now, one group has emerged to connect black gay men in the Coachella Valley. It's a nonprofit called Brothers of the Desert. It was founded four years ago. And I'm joined now by one of the founders, Tim Vincent. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me and being interested in hearing about us. So first of all, congratulations on your wedding. (laughs) (laughs) We were actually in the New York Times. Yes. So let's catch everybody up. Your wedding announcement was in the New York Times. So um, before we get into talking about the group, we'll just briefly touch on your love story, because I think it's relevant to the reasons for forming the group. So you're African-American. Your husband is African-American. And in the article, you said his being African-American was something important that attracted you to him. So why was that important? It's important to have somebody who understands uh I don't know your journey, what what it what it means, what it feels like to to be a black person in in you know in the United States, and so it, it just was really important to me to have a partner who could understand that. And then you two co-founded Brothers of the Desert along with a few other men. Is that correct? We did, we did. We co-founded that um, really based on the fact that we, when we moved to, to Palm Springs, uh, we were you know coming both from bigger places. He was in Los Angeles. I was in Oakland where there was, you know, more uh, African-American gay people. But, uh, and so in coming to Palm Springs and um, being concerned maybe that that wasn't be the case, we started to run into people that we knew who had moved here and, and thought, we need to connect with these people a little bit more. So talk, tell me more about what sparked the idea and what the conversation was around getting something like this started. I think that what sparked the idea was that we knew that it was really important for us to support each other, that people were finding themselves in places where they were one of the only ones, if you know what I mean, in the room. There's a lot of LGBTQ presence, but not LGBTQ people of color presence. And so it was important for us to just connect, support each other. And from there, we started to just, you know, kind of hang out. Um, but even in the hangout, there was just a way that we were seen as doing something kind of different. We would be in a restaurant of maybe 12 of us and people would be asking, you know, is there a conference in town or, you know, so it was just like, no, we live here. But then soon after that, um, I think we really realized that just hanging out wasn't going to be enough or just supporting each other wasn't going to be enough. 
So talk a little bit about the mission of the organization, if you will. Is it social, educational, networking? Is it fun? It is. So so it's really our mission is to empower Black gay men and allies. And we do that through uh, advocacy, education, mentorship, social networking, volunteerism, philanthropy. And so in keeping that large vision, it's been helpful for us to really then be able to launch a lot of different events and programs that kind of fit with that mission. And really with the idea that, you know, I was saying about us getting together and why we got together, but the really, some of the reason was that people felt isolated and people felt disconnected and people did not feel really a part of the larger community um, as Black gay men in the Coachella Valley. And so doing that and having that as our mission really helped us to start to change those dynamics. Right. And I've read that one motto of the group is living your best gay life. So that sounds fun. What does that mean? We wanted to do something um, out facing in the community. Like what would be our first community event? What would be the thing that would say we're here and this is what we're about? And so we um, held what we call a wellness summit. We do this every year now. And the first wellness summit, our theme was living your best black gay life. And we asked the group, we have uh, members of the group, we said, well, what would that be? And for some people that's you know, having great sex. For other people, that's having a wonderful intimate relationship. For other people, it's, you know, having nutrition and a good body. Some people want to talk about finance. So we brought an incredible group of speakers and did like a mini conference, you know, where people could choose like workshops and something would be on spirituality. And another thing would be on yoga. Another thing, like again, would be, you know, a leather man talking about, you know, <laughs> leather sex. And so it really was this range of stuff that really said, you know, that to be healthy is really about, you know, being whole and being kind of true to yourself and, and really finding the things that um, matter to you and, and make you feel good. So as I mentioned, Palm Springs is already thought of as very welcoming to people who identify as LGBTQ+. And, you know, one theme that keeps popping up when you explain the origins of the group is isolation, the feeling of isolation that comes with being Black and gay in Palm Springs. So... After connecting with this group and after connecting with other gay men in the area and having the opportunity to talk and share stories, is there anything that surprised you? I, I, I think what, what surprised me is that people who are in the larger LGBTQ plus community wouldn't understand why we would even need to organize or that we would even need to exist or that it was important for us to have an organization that is exclusively run by Black gay men. Um, I think that that was hard for people to get. And that surprised me that it was so difficult for people to get. Uh, and there was a number, especially the beginning, uh, you know, I think things have changed with the culture somewhat. But at the beginning when we were doing this, I, I think that people were really questioning that and feeling that, you know, we were being, you know, I don't know, isolating ourselves in some ways. But, but I, I think that was a surprise uh, to me. So how has your experience in Palm Springs changed since the group was created? I think my idea of Palm Springs has changed. I don't know. It's easy, but I thought it was going to be sort of less complicated than it was. Palm Springs has a very, very complicated and I would say dark uh, racial history. Um, I think that's been kept from people. Um, so I feel like I felt like I learned a lot more about really what this place has been and what uh, what the history has been, especially as it relates to, to Black people living here. But I've also been very grateful of the fact that this is a small community in some ways and that you really can 
make a difference. So my there is an after. I, I, I feel like I'm a different person here. I feel like I've, I've been able to really help to advocate for our community and for other communities. And I feel like I've been able to really, with our group and with the people that I've worked with in our group, really feel like we've um, become leaders in some ways. And, and I wasn't expecting that at all. I've been talking with Tim Vincent. He's one of the founders of the nonprofit Brothers of the Desert, which connects Black gay men living in the Coachella Valley. He also serves as the president of the board for the organization. Tim Vincent, thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, they got, they got it, it, it. All it is is a mental thing. See, I mean, because Black people are being killed all over the world, even if we speak. I mean, they're dying. They're dying in the desert. They're dying in Somalia right now. I mean, the babies are not even getting out of the mother's wombs. I mean, they'll be dead before the week is over by the thousands. See what I mean? So this thing about black people dying, is, you know, it's just a frame of reference that you want to put it in. That's the way you explain it to people. Black people are dying every day like flies. We begin with the conflict in Ukraine. Not with the military situation on the ground, but the issue of food supply. UN agencies meeting in Geneva have issued dire warnings about the war's consequences both for Ukraine and the world. They said nearly 16 million Ukrainians urgently needed humanitarian assistance. Meanwhile, 1.7 billion people worldwide are facing increased poverty and insecurity because of rising food prices caused in part by Russia's blockade of Ukraine's ports. On Friday, President Joe Biden spoke on the subject of rising food costs in the US. He laid the blame firmly at Russia's door. This is a Putin price hike. Putin's war has raised the price of food because Ukraine and Russia are two of the world's major breadbaskets for wheat and corn, the basic product for so many foods around the world. Chris Mason spoke to the World Food Programme's regional director for Eastern Africa, Michael Dunford. Eastern Africa, the Horn of Africa, is facing the worst food security situation in recent history. We have now 82 million people acutely food insecure, acutely hungry. This is up from about 50 million people this time last year. The war in Ukraine and Russia is exacerbating what already was a disastrous situation. 82 million people acutely hungry. What an extraordinary number. What does acute hunger in reality mean for someone? It means that people are unable to meet their basic needs, skipping meals, eating less nutritious meals. And that's in the best case scenario. In fact, the worst case, people are on the verge of a famine, a catastrophe, in fact. And to what extent can you pin directly what you're currently witnessing on what is happening in Russia and Ukraine, and those blockages which mean that grain which would normally reach you in Eastern Africa isn't doing? Well, if we can just think back to the time at which this war started, already the region was severely impacted by ongoing conflicts in northern Ethiopia, in Somalia and South Sudan. In addition, the effects of climate change. We've got the worst drought in 40 years and then in addition to that, we're coming off the back of the COVID crisis and the macroeconomic shock that has played out across the region. So now the war in February is causing further challenges for 
the World Food Programme and others to meet the needs of the populations. We're seeing that the cost of basic food commodities have increased significantly uh, since the beginning of the war. Uh, we're seeing the price of fuel increase. We're seeing a limited availability of fertiliser, which is having an impact not only on this harvest, but likely to happen uh, impact next year's as well. We've seen the head of the African Union saying that food should be considered outside of packages of sanctions connected to the conflict. Is he right? Absolutely. You know, we need to ensure that food from Ukraine, from Russia, are available. We need to see fertiliser moving uninhibited by any sanctions regimes. We need to ensure that all measures to minimise or stop the conflict are put into place because it's having a hugely negative impact across the globe and we're feeling it particularly in Eastern Africa today. The most vulnerable populations, the most vulnerable countries are being drawn into a conflict or the effects of a conflict which they have no role to play. So again, it's essential that the war in Ukraine is solved and solved quickly that the food in the ports in Odessa and elsewhere are released so that they can be made available on the world market. What the war is also causing is a lot of speculation in markets, and that's playing out by driving prices up in countries such as Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia, who are also feeling the effects of this drought at the moment. A final thought, Michael. Reflecting on our conversation over the last few minutes... Do you find grounds for optimism? It's a good question. I need to remain optimistic because there are 37 million people counting on the World Food Programme to meet their basic uh, food security needs. If I lose optimism, if I lose hope, then I'm not sure what is going to happen to those populations. Black babies cost less. The baby formula shortage has rekindled a debate over the advantages and disadvantages of breastfeeding. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. When an Air Force C-17 landed in Indianapolis last weekend, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack was on hand to welcome 78,000 pounds of infant formula that was rushed in from Switzerland. I'm told that this shipment provides enough formula to take care of 9,000 babies and 18,000 toddlers uh, for a week. And Vilsack said that's only the beginning. A second plane load of formula arrived on the East Coast a few days later. We're going to continue to look for ways in which we can expand supply and expand our capacity. We're going to take a look at the flexibilities, the ability to substitute more easily. Some observers say this worldwide hunt for formula would not be necessary, though, if the U.S. made more of an investment in a homegrown substitute, breast milk. If we did more to support breastfeeding, we wouldn't be in this mess. Melissa Bartik is a doctor and professor at Harvard Medical School. She's been studying and promoting the benefits of breastfeeding since running into hospital roadblocks trying to nurse her own child more than two decades ago. I had suffered so much feeding my child, I didn't really think that anybody should have to suffer just to feed their child. I thought it would be sort of a maternity leave project, but here I am 23 years later still working on it. <laughs> The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that most babies be fed exclusively with breast milk for the first six months. But at last count, only about one in four babies born in the U.S. met that target. There are a variety of reasons families turn to supplemental formula or stop nursing altogether. But Bartek says aggressive marketing by formula makers is partly to blame. 
the formula makers would just give tons and tons of free formula to the hospital to try to sell their brand and have the hospitals and mothers home with gift bags full of formula. So if they run into any problem at home, they just pop in a ready to feed bottle in the baby and that starts the mother becoming dependent on formula. Some hospitals now prohibit formula giveaways, but Bartik says the manufacturers find creative workarounds. Frankly, they have way, way more money than us and we can't fight that. Half the formula sold in the U.S. is paid for by the federal government to support low-income families. Babies that receive that subsidized formula are less likely to ever breastfeed than those who don't. Since 2005, global formula sales have more than doubled to $55 billion. Still, this year's shortage has put a harsh new spotlight on the formula industry. The Federal Trade Commission has launched an inquiry into how a handful of companies came to dominate the market. And some are calling for a more reliable way to keep babies fed. The breast is the shortest supply chain. Economist Katie Russ of the University of California at Davis is quick to acknowledge not every parent can or wants to breastfeed. But six out of ten mothers stop breastfeeding earlier than they'd like. Russ says there's too little training from health care providers, too few pumping options for mothers at work, and too little family leave. It's a little bit demoralizing when you have a baby and you're talking to your friends like in these other countries and they're going to have a year of leave to nurse their children and you don't. It's not easy to breastfeed. Mothers need support. It's not an easy process. It's work. Dr. Bartik argues boosting breastfeeding rates would bring substantial health care savings since nursing babies suffer less from ear infections, diarrhea, obesity, and other ailments. But Russ says building the economic case for breastfeeding requires a more inclusive kind of accounting. If you buy formula, that goes into GDP as a transaction. Breastfeeding isn't. And in fact, what may show up in national economic statistics is that you may be working less. I think that it's important to understand that breast milk is part of food systems. It is a supply chain in itself. Boosting breastfeeding rates won't solve the immediate formula shortage, but the memory of those empty store shelves may prompt some families to take a second look at formula's original competition. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. internet can be an ugly place, even in a galaxy far, far away. Some fans of the new Star Wars show on Disney Plus were not pleased to see last week's debut of Black actor Moses Ingram. She stars as one of the main villains in the latest series about Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi. Ingram received hundreds of anti-Black and misogynistic messages. Some included threats. She was called the N-word. She responded in a video she posted to Instagram. 
But I think the thing that bothers me is that like sort of this feeling that I've had inside of myself, which no one has told me, but this feeling of like, I just got to shut up and take it. You know, I just kind of got to grin and bear it. Um, and I'm not built like that. Well, it's not the first time fans of the franchise have bullied actors of color. Actors John Boyega, who's black, and Kelly Marie Tran, who's Asian-American, were also attacked when they joined the Star Wars universe. We're going to talk about this now with David Betancourt. He covers comic book culture for The Washington Post. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, talk about some of the racist remarks that she experienced. What were fans saying about her and her character? Well, the, first, the, the Star Wars community has uh, rallied around Moses, including uh, most recently Ewan McGregor, the star of Obi-Wan Kenobi in the titular role, who released a tweet out into the Internet saying, you know, that the entire cast and crew is, is behind Moses. Um, but this is this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, this is not the first time that the an, an issue of, of blackness has kind of intertwined with the Star Wars world, whether you talk about uh, the ne negative experience John Boyega had during his time, you know, Oscar Isaac, a Latino actor. There seems to be something going on in the Star Wars world with a certain section of the fans where if you are a person of color, there are only so many toys you can play with. And the big toy right here that Moses has is a very cool lightsaber. And that appears to have really rubbed some of these, uh, you know, trolls, racist, whatever you want to call them, uh, the wrong way. So you literally mean toy. I, mean, I thought you were using that word as a metaphor, but uh, no, you literally no, I, mean I, I'm a using toy. it. I mean, I mean, in the series, uh, Moses plays a, an inquisitor. These are, you know, Darth Vader's uh, assistants, if you will, equipped with uh, very cool red lightsabers, just like him. And they, they go out and they hunt Jedi. What, what seems to be at issue here is I think there's a certain section of the Star Wars fandom that is used to seeing people that look like Moses in very small supporting roles in this Star Wars universe. Um, Moses is a very big part of this show. Uh, her character, Reva, is, you know, taking vi video chats with Darth Vader and following his orders and lighting up a lightsaber and bossing people around. And this is this is something new for black women in this franchise. So the the optics of it are, you know, hitting that dark section of the fandom uh, very mm -hmm. strongly because, you know, there, there's just sadly a certain section of the fandom that is used to people of color not having largely important roles when it comes to Star Wars. Well, I guess I wonder if then we should shift the focus to the creators and the directors and the writers and everyone else who's behind this and, and look at them and say, well, why haven't there been actors of color in meaningful roles until now? You know, I think you have to look at the, the origins of Star Wars. You know, this is something that, you know, Star Wars was born in the 70s. You know, George Lucas, a child of the 50s and 60s, putting this all together. You know, Hollywood has changed a lot from the time Star Wars first debuted in the late 70s to now in 2022. If you look at the circle of creators, the directors and writers who are part of this, uh, that John Favreau and Dave Filoni have put together, um, it's a very diverse group of people that's more reflective of the true fandom of Star Wars. And so of mm -hmm. course, when you put together someone like Deborah Chow, who was the director of all six episodes of Obi-Wan Obi Kenobi, you know, you're gonna have content that more reflects a more diverse world. And I commend the people at Lucasfilm for 
making the effort. But, you know, from what I've heard, Moses was warned that this is something that could happen. Yeah. So she she was perhaps prepared. I guess no one can be fully prepared for that kind of attack, but at least she had some kind of warning. What can the powers that be at Star Wars do to try to prevent this? I mean, the internet is full of disgusting troll behavior. You know, the irony is this kind of ugly chapter is happening right after the most recent Star Wars celebration of four-day event over in Anaheim, where they basically just spent four days kumbayaing over the fact that everyone loves Star Wars and everyone's so happy with all of the, the new shows and series and different places that this universe is going. But for now, you can just stand the course. You know, for me, it's it, it's really interesting because if you look at the future of Star Wars, take a look at the most recent Vanity Fair cover that had Pedro Pascal, Rosario Dawson, Ewan McGregor, and Diego Luna. Uh, Three-fourths of that cover was Latino. Mm-hmm. Uh, as someone myself, I'm, I'm half Puerto Rican. And as a Latino, I can say, wow, the future of Star Wars sure looks Latino. Biggest star on the planet, Mandalorian, Chile, Rosario, Puerto Rico, Afro-Cuban. Uh, Diego Luna, Mexican. Uh, But whenever you veer towards Blackness in this universe, and I'm half African-American and I can attest to this because I'm a huge Star Wars fan, there there always seems to be this small sect of of fandom that just can't wrap their minds around the fact that, you know, maybe there's a young Black girl out there somewhere that wants to be a Jedi. You know, Moses is from Baltimore, right up the road from where I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I am vicariously living through her, watching her wave her lightsaber around. These are things that have an impact on me just because of who I am when I see them. And I think the best thing that Lucasfilm can do is just continue the path, but also make sure that they are prepared with a response like they have been with their tweets and with Ewan making a video to make sure that this fandom knows that these type of things won't be tolerated by me. All right, David, thank you so much for coming on. Sit down, Chief. We're going to have a Thanksgiving Day. We're going to thank, give thanks for all of the wonderful things that have been done for both me and you by our Maker, by the great spirits. And, in fact, I brought some spirits with me. It's in a bottle. You never had anything like this before, but you will want it after you get it. It's called firewater. It's full of spirits. It'll give you spirit like you have never had before, Chief. And the Chief said, well, what's wrong with just pure water from the river, from the great streams of our lands? Say, oh, yeah, but you never had nothing like this. This is something we made in a factory. It's got water in it. No mistake about that. But we got a little alcohol and a few other stuff, a little other stuff that I've added here. It'll pep you up, give you another perspective on looking at the mountains all together. Hmm, might be good stuff. So he gives it to the chief. And at the same time, now, the chief is a little suspicious. So he's drinking right along with the chief. So that means everything must be okay. So he's drinking, I'm drinking. Next thing you know, the chief is under the table. Chief's not used to it. The Blackfeet Nation in Montana has been under a declared state of emergency since 17 people overdosed on fentanyl. Four of them died. During the pandemic, the overdose death rate for Native Americans became the highest of any ethnic group in America. Tribal leaders are trying to respond to the crisis. But as Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports, there are some big obstacles. 
On Marla Olinger's 300-acre ranch in the heart of the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, vast rolling prairies stretch for hundreds of miles. The snow-capped peaks of Glacier National Park loom on the western horizon. Near an old barn, Olinger is watching her family train a young, sandy-colored horse that's still getting used to the rider on its back. Our horses are pretty gentle. They just come out and get on a horse because they really like the, the horses. They like to ride. She's referring to her grandchildren, who, with her son, Justin Lee Little Dog, moved back to the ranch from Texas a couple of years ago. But when Little Dog moved his family to the nearby town of Browning, things started to unravel. Hollinger started hearing from friends and family who saw his six-year-old stepson walking around town alone. She got the family to move back to the ranch so she could keep a closer eye on the kids. But one day, her youngest son called her frantic. He was trying to wake up Little Dog's unresponsive girlfriend. Later, after she came to, Ollinger asked Little Dog if he and his girlfriend were using opioids. He denied it. He sat at the table and he, we talked about fentanyl. Ollinger had never heard of the drug. Little Dog explained that people on the reservation were dying from using the synthetic opioid, which is up to 100 times more potent than morphine. He said he would never do something so dangerous. And he picked up a grain of salt out of the palm of his hand at the dinner table. He said, this is all it takes to kill you. He knew the consequences of it. But in early March, Ollinger woke up to the screams of Little Dog's girlfriend coming from the other room. And I come through the bedroom and and my son was laying on the floor, on the floor. And <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Little Dog was dead one of four people killed by fentanyl overdoses that week on the reservation. Thirteen other people overdosed that week, but survived. Time, I know yeah. you are the biggest town on the reservation is Browning. Only about a thousand people live there. It's often bustling with ranchers buying supplies, and every summer thousands of tourists stream through on the way to Glacier National Park. So uh, under Blackfeet Tribal Law Enforcement, I'm a criminal investigator, and I investigate violent crime. Officer Misty LaPlante pilots her patrol car through a town that looks like it's been through tough times. Waves of European settlement and government efforts to wipe out native cultures have taken a toll here. From the outside looking in, you might not even know. I think I only get that perspective from obviously working in the community. The latest challenge, arriving later than it has elsewhere in America, is fentanyl. Like there were crazy stories where like someone would roll up to the hospital and kick somebody out of their car and nobody could figure out what was going on and, you know, turns out it was an overdose type of thing. LaPlante is head of the emergency task force for the tribe set up after the wave of overdoses. As she drives, she points out a growing homeless population. On a rough side street, we pass a small yellow building that could have once been someone's home. It's the tribe's underfunded addiction treatment center. That's like a handful of people that you can bring there. You know, I don't know. clearly doesn't meet the need. Medication like buprenorphine that helps people manage opioid addiction isn't available here. LaPlante says there are underlying problems on the reservation that are both made worse by addiction and drive people to use drugs in the first place. Suicide, housing, abuse. I mean, there are so many that you can count um, as a relation to.
substance abuse. The tribe has set aside money for a new treatment center and is working with other tribes to expand treatment regionally. But Browning's water and sewer infrastructure are maxed out, making it hard to build anything. Short term, I think harm reduction is one of the, the major things that we're going to need to work on. And those are the tangible things that we can do with the resources that we have available here and now. That means getting the overdose reversal drug naloxone into more residents' hands. The tribal health department is creating a one-stop shop to connect people to what help is available locally and to residential treatment off-reservation. The fentanyl crisis is playing out across America. Overdose deaths are up 45 percent among all racial groups since the pandemic started. UCLA addiction researcher Joe Friedman says in 2020 they shot up to 30 percent higher for Native Americans than whites, the highest among all racial groups. With the drug supply becoming so dangerous and so toxic, it requires resources and knowledge and skills and funds to stay safe. Treaties the U.S. government signed with Native nations guaranteed them health care. But Congress underfunds the modern Indian Health Service by $32 billion, according to a U.S. Civil Rights Commission report from 2018. The Blackfeet Nation faces strong headwinds. Their leaders and people who live here, like Marla Ollinger, say they have to try to do everything they can to fight back the deadliest wave of the opioid epidemic. It's heartbreaking to watch your children die unnecessarily. She hopes that sharing her story will help the Blackfeet Nation get access to the kinds of services available in other places, so no one has to live through what she's experienced. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Browning, Montana. California's first-in-the-nation reparations task force released its initial report today after a year of meetings and hours spent studying the lasting effects of slavery and racism. The 500-page document not only looks at the ways both the federal and state government harmed generations of black Californians, it also offers suggestions for how the state can pay reparations. Ideas include free tuition, housing grants, and raising the minimum wage, among other ideas. The details as to who will get what will come later in a second report due in a year. Joining me now is one of the members of the task force, Lisa Holder. She's a civil rights attorney here in Los Angeles. Welcome back to Press Play. Hi, Madeline. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, great to have you back. So we had you on a year ago when you uh, had just met for the first time with the task force. And since then, I understand you've been looking at the role slavery played in the quality of life for people today, for today's African-Americans. And what did you discover? Well, number one, it's hard to believe a year has gone by. It's yeah. been uh, quite a year 
you know, I have been a student of history my whole life, so I know a lot of the history. But there were many things, particularly about California, that surprised me. You know, many people think of California as the super progressive state um, that's always been that way and that this has always been the most egalitarian state and that California started off as a free state. So they were not complicit in slavery or Jim Crow or segregation. That is completely historically inaccurate. And the experts that we spoke to gave us an accurate historical record. First of all, California's first government was a notorious anti-black racist who tried to set first governor, rather, who tried to create all types of exclusion policies to ensure that black people could not enter into the state. Also, there was slavery in California. They came to the state of California because they were brought by their owners to do things like uh, gold mining. And so there were many slaves in the state of California, and there was a lot of litigation around whether or not these people who, who were enslaved in the state of California were entitled to be free. So California was complicit with slavery in many ways. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the uh, 20th century, in the 1900s, California had many policies uh, that were aligned with Jim Crow segregation. Um, and that's one of the reasons, um, especially when you look at policies like redlining and ensuring that um, capital was not invested in neighborhoods that were or majority black or majority people of color. Those policies that we saw instituted in California, redlining, restrictive covenants, et cetera, continue to have an impact on the geography of California today and on black people's access to things like housing, to access to wealth. We know that for every black household that makes $1, a white household makes $11 in wealth annually. So that is a massive wealth gap. You see statistics that show that a black person with a college education is less likely to get a job than a white person with only a high school diploma. And these are things that are happening today that are continuing to increase the wealth gap. And they started back in the slave era and back in the segregation era. Let me ask you, because um, there are other groups that have also experienced that kind of um, discrimination when it comes to what you just mentioned, uh, segregation, redlining, uh, the seizure of their land. I mean, Native Americans, they were here first, uh, and they were also denied um, their land and also forced into servitude. Chinese uh, railway and mine workers also uh, treated terribly, redlining affecting uh, Japanese Americans. So lots of other groups have experienced these things, but these this reparations task force is just looking at the effect on African Americans? This reparation task force was convened to look at the history of anti-Black discrimination. There have been other initiatives to look at the history of Native American discrimination, Japanese American exclusion, etc. And our task force is very much allied to those movements. But there has been a profound history of anti-Black discrimination in this country. Mm -hmm. And 
it is important for this task force to focus on that history exclusively. That is where our focus is. Okay, so let's talk about some of the recommendations in this 500-page report. Um, What are some of the highlights in terms of how the state might look to make amends? Well, the first thing that I want to say as a preliminary matter is that this is an interim report. You know, putting together this report was a huge undertaking. Um, And we have spent the last year not so much focused on recommendations, but on creating the scholarly foundation for what our recommendations will be. So that'll be um, a lot more difficult, I guess, to come to an agreement on, right? And that that seems to be the more uh, difficult part of this is figuring out exactly what the state needs to do. Like everything that we've done, it is a huge undertaking. It has Mm -hmm. many challenges. But we have put an infrastructure in place in terms of getting support from social scientists, from economists, etc. So they are helping us in terms of not only understanding all the data, that, we, that needs to inform our recommendations, but they will also be helping us with crafting recommendations that can be implemented and that are practicable. In the, in the next year, as we sit down to uh, look at the data and decide what the recommendations will be, um, we are going to have the support of social scientists in making sure that we get it right and making sure that um, our recommendations can be implemented. All right. It is a 500-page report. And is it available for people to read if they're interested online? Yes. It's it's going to be housed on the DOJ's website and on the California Reparations Task Force's website. And we really want people to read this. There's a reparations movement that is expanding and growing all over the country. At the local level, we're seeing all over the country different reparations task forces. And we're seeing it also at the federal federal level with H.R. 40. And so we want those um, groups and that movement to have access to this body of evidence um, and to utilize it to help with their reparations programs and plans as well. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show again. Uh, Thank you so much, Madeline, for covering the story and for all the work that you do. That's Lisa Holder, civil rights attorney and member of California's Reparations Task Force. How would you like to be given the opportunity to figure out yourself how your tax dollars should be spent to get together with others in your community and put it to a vote? That's exactly what some neighborhoods in L.A. are doing. In Boyle Heights, West Adams, South L.A., and six other communities in the Southland, residents are taking part in the city's first participatory budget pilot program. And that means they will decide how to allocate $8.5 million from this year's budget. It's part of the launch of the city's Repair Innovation Fund. Repair stands for Reforms for Equity and Public Acknowledgement of Institutional Racism. I'm joined now by Capri Maddox. She's the executive director of the Los Angeles Civil and Human Rights and Equity Department, or L.A. Civil Rights. 
Her department oversees the Innovation Fund and helped plan the participatory budgeting pilot. Welcome, Capri. Thank you so much, Jenea, for having me. Thank you for being here. So if you could just set the table for people who have never heard of participatory budgeting briefly, how does it work? Participatory budgeting gives real people real power over real money. Uh, LA Repair was launched by Mayor Eric Garcetti, and it's a way of addressing systemic issues uh, with novel solutions. And the LA Repair program will give nine communities across Los Angeles the ability on on how to spend $8.5 million in their neighborhoods. So how do they decide? How do they get together and decide what do they do? Well, this entire process we run by the community with support from the LA Civil Rights uh, Department and the community members will form a steering committee and the advisory committees that will oversee the process. Um, And the items that people propose will eventually be placed on a ballot and then community members will have an opportunity to vote for their favorite proposal to determine what will be funded. I read that it's been used in uh, Brazil, you know, a lot of different places that you wouldn't think. So how well has it worked in those places? What have been the results? They've had success in so many ways. And to really figure out exactly um, what people need. And in some instances, it may be assistance with child care programs or um, services for transportation, et cetera. And I want to let you all know that this is a pilot program for the city of Los Angeles. So we don't know exactly where um, where we'll focus our efforts, um, but it will be coming directly from the community to figure out what the greatest and highest needs are. Great. And then how were the nine communities chosen for the pilot? We looked at unemployment and poverty data air and water pollution rates, uh, the digital divide, and you know how people had access to internet in their homes. We also looked at COVID-19 case rates. And you should know that for each repair zone, at least 87% of the residents are people of color, and at least 16% of them live below the poverty line. What do you say to people who maybe don't think this is fair, that these communities are getting the opportunity to make choices that we all want to make, what would you say to that? These are communities that have been underserved for far too long. They're communities that have been wronged for far too long. These are communities that um, have suffered with environmental racism, um, pollution in many ways, of course. Um, They've been underinvested in. And They've just been the victims of structural racism in so many ways. Interestingly, these zones line up almost perfectly with redlining maps from the 1930s when neighborhoods were defined by race and communities of color were denied federal home loans, which shows the impact of structural racism are alive and well even today. And also, this is just a a pilot program, and it's the first attempt to say, that we want to support those communities that have been hardest hit, particularly those communities that have been hardest hit by the COVID crisis. And when things go wrong, um, they stay wrong for far too long in these communities. I've been speaking with Capri Maddox. She's the executive director of the L.A. Civil Rights Department, which is overseeing the city's first participatory budgeting pilot program. Capri Maddox, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Shania. I'm just trying to... Run through the money, run. Yeah. I'm just trying to 
Run through the money, run. What? Yeah, do it. I'm trying to blow a check. The U.S. cities with the highest inflation rates are not New York, not L.A., not any of the most expensive metro areas. Instead, the biggest cost of living spikes are in the southwest and southeast, in places often considered affordable. As residents in those cities are learning, affordable is a relative term. Stephanie Stokes reports from member station WABE in Atlanta. I meet Shaniqua Cannon at a strip mall east of Atlanta. It's 90 degrees outside, and she says it's too hot to talk inside the house, too expensive to run the AC. So I'm actually shopping for an AC unit, a portable one. We sit in a shady spot under a tree. Cannon tells me she's living at her aunt's place right now. She's been there since the end of last year. She moved to Atlanta from Miami six years ago. She was a high school English teacher with young twins and wanted cheaper rents. Did you find Atlanta affordable at first? At first, heck yeah. Miami would have like a 900 square foot place for $1,500. Or I can come here, get a house with a backyard, and it's $1,000. Things started out great. Until this last year, year and a half. After the pandemic hit, Cannon quit teaching because in-person classes felt unsafe. She started doing some freelance writing, but it was a big hit to her family budget. Only her partner had a stable income. Then the company that owned her home decided to renovate. They offered her one of their other rentals. I was like, okay, so I'll just try to find another one of their properties. Everything was 1500 and above. She found that was the going rate all over. Cannon was shocked. Rents had increased about 50% since she first got to Atlanta. Rents and shelter prices are increasing rapidly here in Atlanta. Brent Meyer is an economist with the Atlanta Federal Reserve. He says to understand inflation in the cities where it's highest, Atlanta and also Phoenix, you just have to look at the climbing housing costs. Those trajectories in the Atlanta area are a lot higher than where they are elsewhere in the U.S. So what's going on? Oleg Konstantinovsky is a broker with an Atlanta company called ProMove. It helps renters find apartments. There are so many people that have relocated to Atlanta. He points to the pandemic and remote work opportunities. These new residents drive up demand, and that drives up rents. If an apartment complex is, say, at 90 percent occupancy, their prices will be lower. But when they're sitting at 97, 98, they're going to maximize their costs. The home sales market looks similar. Buyers compete for listings and often pay above the asking price. But not everyone is complaining. For some new residents coming to Atlanta, prices here still are a relief. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Yeah. Laurel Rosenberg lets me into her home in a northern Atlanta suburb. I notice you still have California plates. I want all the cars. <laughs> she moved from an eastern Bay Area suburb last year with her family. Her daughter and son-in-law could no longer afford California and wanted to leave. Rosenberg sold her home for $535,000. Looking at houses out here, I think we paid four thirty-five, and this one is literally twice the house on twice the property. She and her daughter's family, including two grandkids, all live there. And the movement, Rosenberg, who is 58, can retire with the cash left over from the sale of her California house. So that's California cash. California money makes it sound like it's a different currency. It is a different currency. <laughs> Look at our power bill. <laughs> Way less than what it was in California. Rosenberg knows new people like her are part of what's making Atlanta more expensive for longtime residents. But she does plan to stay. So what's affordable for her may change, too. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Stokes in Atlanta. Let's look up white. Here. 
Read. White. Of the color of pure snow. Uh, reflecting all the rays of the spectrum. The opposite of black. Uh, free from spot or blemish. Innocent. Pure. Huh. Ain't this something without evil intent? Harmless. Honest. Square dealing and honorable. Wait a minute, but this 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 was written by white folks though, right? I mean, this white white folks book. This sure ain't no black man's book. So what are we reading this one for? Because the truth is lying there. If you read behind the words, you got to take everything the white man says and use it against him. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a whole lot of words in here. Here, let's start at the beginning. We'll look them up, write them down, and find out what they mean. Here, page one, the first word, aardvark. Officials in prison systems across the United States have banned certain books to cut off access to material that they say might incite violence. In Michigan, the ban has extended to several non-English language dictionaries. Michelle Jokish-Polo of member station WKAR in East Lansing reports. Over the last year, the Michigan Department of Corrections has banned dictionaries in Spanish and Swahili, under claims that the contents of the books are a threat to the state's penitentiaries. If certain prisoners all decided to learn a very obscure language, they would be able to then speak freely in front of staff and others about introducing contraband or assaulting staff or assaulting another prisoner. That's Chris Scouts. He's a spokesperson for the Michigan Department of Corrections. He says allowing prisoners to gain access to language books other than English, could encourage them to organize without the knowledge of staff. When it's in a language that we don't have the ability to read ourselves and understand exactly what it is that we're looking for, we're not able to allow it in. If staff is unable to find a translation, the book request is denied, and the book is placed under the list of banned books, even when these are in Spanish the second most commonly spoken language in American households. For Rodolfo Rodriguez, getting books in his own native language has been about learning how to communicate in English, something he says he's been trying to do since his sentence in 1993. He says here that you feel like they're telling you that pure Spanish is worthless, that you don't need to learn because you'll just stay here. Seven books in both Spanish and Swahili have been banned from the state's prisons in the last year, according to a list obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. Kwesi Oshandar was born in Detroit and says he's been requesting books in Swahili since 2009. So Swahili being one of the more widely spoken African languages, that was the first stop for me. Oshandar says he's filed grievances with the prison he's in, but these never went anywhere. It's there because they have to give us some form of process to seek administrative remedies, but very seldom does anybody get any relief. Gout says the issue of banning language books isn't something that's come up a lot. If we were to start seeing requests and a need to have something be reviewed uh, along these lines, we could certainly be open to that. Paul Wright is the director of the Human Rights Defense Center and a former inmate at a correctional facility in the state of Washington. While he was incarcerated, Wright founded Prison Legal News, a publication that he's fought to keep from being censored at several prisons across the country. 
prison officials like to censor anything that's critical of themselves. And also they like to censor anything to do with minority anything. A 1989 Supreme Court ruling allows prisons to ban any book, as long as it's in the interest of safety. Rodolfo Rodriguez would like the Michigan policy on books in different languages revised. He says incarcerated people deserve a right to educate themselves in their own native language. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishbolo. Everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We gotta have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. We turn now to NPR reporting on one of the most violent and deadly federal prisons in the country. NPR's Joseph Shapiro and Christy Thompson with the Marshall Project investigated a string of killings at the penitentiary in Thompson, Illinois. Here's Joseph with our report. Sue Phillips thinks prison guards had to know what was going to happen when they put her son Matthew into a recreation cage with two members of a white supremacist prison gang. Matt was Jewish. He got a Star of David tattooed on his chest. His mother says he wasn't particularly observant, but being Jewish was part of his identity, like that tattoo. Sort of right in the middle of his upper chest, sort of on like the breastbone area, and it was just... A large Star of David. You could not miss it. And you couldn't miss that the two men led into the wreck cage that morning were white supremacists. Their tattoos showed they were members of a prison gang called the Valhalla Bound Skinheads. They had white supremacy markings on their shoes. This is all from the federal indictment of the two men. They also had cells that contained Nazi memorabilia, mugs with SWAT stickers on them, articles and literature promoting white supremacy, drawings of Hitler. It was the morning of March 2nd, 2020, in the wreck cage at the newest federal prison at Thompson, Illinois. Matt Phillips was in college when he got addicted. He went to prison for selling heroin. Brandon Simonson and Christopher Martin were known in prison as Whitey and Nolock. And in that wreck cage, which is just that, a fence cage like a large dog kennel, those men allegedly attacked Phillips, kicking and stomping his head. There was a reference in the indictment that said they continued to kick him in the head repeatedly, even when he became defenseless, and even when the guard shouted stop. What, if anything, did the guards do to stop this, besides shouting stop? The Federal Bureau of Prisons said it can't talk about a case under litigation. NPR, working with the Marshall Project, investigated conditions at Thompson. We found it is one of the most dangerous and violent federal prisons in America. Since 2020, seven prisoners have died violently at Thompson. Matt Phillips, he was 31, was the first to die. Then Edsel Bodoni and Shea Paneri, both stabbed. Boyd Weekly, Patrick Bacon hangings. In December, Bobby Everson, another homicide. I just screamed. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I said, no. That's Angela Everson on how she reacted when she heard her nephew was killed at Thompson. I had just got a letter from him. And he said, auntie, don't go nowhere now because I'm coming out. Don't go nowhere. But he wind up leaving me. Then in March, James Everett, found unresponsive in this cell. His mother, LaVonda Clark, says her son with his mental health problems never should have been in Thompson. He was talking about the guards, how mean they were, and it's not a good place. The Federal Bureau of Prisons moved its special management unit to Thompson in 2019. 
That's a disciplinary unit that is supposed to be reserved for dangerous prisoners, ones who are gang leaders or cause violence. There was an earlier special management unit at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. A 2016 investigation by NPR and the Marshall Project showed high rates of violence there. Then the Bureau of Prisons shut it down. Lewisburg was not only a violence factory, it was a homicide factory. That's Mark Donatelli. He's part of the Federal Death Penalty Resource Council, lawyers who represent defendants in federal death penalty cases. Donatelli says they noticed something about men who went through the special management unit, known as the SMU. We know of at least seven prisoners who came through the SMU program at Lewisburg, and within a short period of time after they're released, they were involved in homicides, most of them in prisons, one on the street. But these were prisoners who didn't have murders in their records, but did shortly after the time they were released from the SMU. Donatelli says conditions that cause violence at Lewisburg are the same or worse at Thompson. Men placed in restraints, sometimes painful four-point restraints for hours or days, something Donatelli says that's rare at other federal prisons. Prisoners forced into tiny cells with men they don't get along with and locked down for 23 hours a day. Men with mental health problems who don't get medications or care, a severe and stubborn staff shortage of corrections officers. These are all problems that NPR and the Marshall Project found in our investigation. This is likely another violence or homicide factory that the Bureau of Prisons is running. Sue Phillips and her ex-husband, Matt's father, flew from Texas and found their son in the intensive care unit. Half of his skull had been removed to relieve pressure on his swollen brain. Matt was sedated, intubated, unable to breathe on his own, unable to talk, and he was... Handcuffed to the bed, both arms handcuffed to the bed rails. Her son was taken first to a small rural hospital. Doctors there said he needed to go to a trauma center. Hospital records show that prison officials refused an airlift by helicopter and sent him by ambulance instead for 90 miles. When Sue Phillips arrived, a prison official took control and warned her, don't talk to the doctors. She got just one or two 10-minute visits a day with her dying son. Two corrections officers sat outside the room. What I clearly remember, though, is them sort of laughing and talking and sort of, you know, just fooling around with each other. And even at the end of his life, Matt was treated with such a lack of dignity. NPR got access to a U.S. Department of Justice document that says two of the guards mocked the dying man. They told hospital staff they should just poke Matt Phillips in his exposed brain and get it over with. Someone at one of the hospitals reported the guards. The Federal Bureau of Prisons investigated. The guards denied it. We asked the Bureau of Prisons, did they punish those corrections officers? Why didn't Phillips get an air evacuation? Why was he handcuffed to the bed? The BOP said it can't talk about a case where there's pending litigation. The Phillips family is suing to try to get some answers about how their son died. We are so outraged what happened to our son and now to learn how many times it's happened over and over again at really this house of horrors. There needs to be answers, there needs to be accountability, and it needs to stop. The two men charged with killing Matthew Phillips pleaded not guilty. They'll go to trial, maybe later this year. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation 
seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. Doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, um, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, um, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. What was thought to be a senior prank at first turned into a hate crime at a local high school. KSPY's Jacob Dizon is in Vandenberg Village and has more on what happened. Cabrillo High School is recovering after a destructive rampage on campus left racial slurs painted on the walls and school property destroyed. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department is leading this investigation, which they've now determined was a hate crime. Santa Barbara County Sheriff deputies say early Tuesday morning, Cabrillo High School staff, along with members of the Lompoc Unified School District, were notified of vandalism on campus. The report was that there was vandalism that included racial slurs and painting on walls, over murals, and on windows throughout the um, Cabrillo High School campus. A statement from the district says Cabrillo High staff, as well as members from the LUSD's M and O department, spent much of Tuesday painting over graffiti, boarding up shattered windows, and cleaning up the rest of the mess left behind. District Assistant Superintendent of Business Services Doug Sorum also added that his team offers their sincere thanks to the hardworking staff at Cabrillo High and their M&O team for quickly responding to repair and clean up this damage. While this could be described as a senior prank, what it is is vandalism and a hate crime. District officials, as well as Santa Barbara County Sheriff deputies, say they're still searching for those responsible. Right now, the cost of the damage done has still not been made available, but Mark Swanitz, principal of Cabrillo High, told me the district and authorities are still working on gathering more information. Cabrillo High School students I spoke with also told me they were given little to no details regarding the vandalism and that they couldn't comment more on this investigation. In Vandenberg Village, Jacob Dizon, KSBY News. And the sheriff's office is asking anyone who may have information about this incident to call them or make a report online. We will have a link to that in this story on KSBY.com. You're probably one of them knee-jerk liberals thinks us gun boys will shoot our guns because it's a, an extension of our penises. I never thought about it that way. It could be true. Or maybe it is. But this is gun country. Can't even own a handgun in New York City. Out here, I hardly know a man that doesn't own one. And I'll tell you something. Unlike your city, we can walk our streets and through our parks at night and feel safe. Muggers operating out here, they're just playing get their asses blown up. The mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde have horrified Americans. Nineteen children and two adults shot to death in Uvalde. Ten people killed in Buffalo. And then again this week, four more people shot and killed at a medical building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the list goes on and on. Mass shootings make headlines, but gun violence is an everyday problem in the U.S., and it skyrocketed during the pandemic, as did gun company profits. Publicly traded gun manufacturers have netted some $3 billion since the pandemic began. That is according to The Trace, a journalism nonprofit covering gun violence. Champ Barton reported the story and joins us now. Hi there. Hi. $3 billion 
since the pandemic began in net profits for gun manufacturers. How unusual is that? How far above what you know the profits that they'd been recording in, in prior years? For several of these companies, it was the most profitable years in their history, according to SEC filings, or at least in the past you know, 10 or 15 years. And that squares with what we saw from the gun sales increase of 2020 and 2021, which is that those were two of the highest years on record for gun sales. It's also important to note that these gun manufacturers and ammunition manufacturers, it seems, were able to also keep costs down during the pandemic. Uh, Their sales numbers or their profit numbers rather outpaced their sales numbers slightly. Um, It's not entirely clear what was causing that disparity between the sales numbers and the profit numbers, but certainly they were able to keep costs down in addition to having these record sales. This is based on public filings, or how were you able to verify this? As far as gun sales writ large across the country are concerned, that information is essentially kept by the FBI. They record background checks on legally purchased firearms from federal firearms licensees, and those background check numbers are a proxy for gun sales. They obviously undercount because there are a number of private sales that do not get background checks, but the FBI keeps those statistics and we reached the highest number of background checks ever in 2020. So why? What was it about the pandemic that motivated people to go out and buy a lot of guns, buy a lot of ammo? It's a combination of factors. I mean, typically these sales spikes are seasonal and they tend to follow the election cycle a little bit. But what drives the sale surge in 2020 was not really the most standard event. When the pandemic started, there was a lot of fear of sort of social unrest and sort of a breakdown of the social order. There was sort of fear that the institutions would not be able to protect us. If you had a problem, could you call the police in the middle of a pandemic? Would the police show up in the middle of a pandemic? There were these overwhelming you know, questions and fears about whether or not people could be protected or could count on their institutions to protect them. And so that had driven an early surge in gun buying, at least as far as sort of anecdotal evidence confirms. But then there was the George Floyd protests and fear around social unrest related to those protests certainly spurred a continuation of that gun buying surge. Then there was the election, which added to it some more. And then there was the insurrection in January, you know, which further added to these persistent fears that people were going to need to protect themselves at a certain point from one group or another. And so it was like kind of like a quadruple whammy there that led to these record numbers. Let me circle back to where we started and the mass shootings um, from which America is, is reeling in Uvalde, in Buffalo and beyond. Do you see a connection? How do you see the link between what you're reporting, these record profits, and events like this? So I think that the events like we saw in Uvalde and in Buffalo are extremely rare, and it's important to remember that they're extremely rare. Overwhelmingly, gun violence in the U.S. is occurring in cities. It's occurring in personal disputes and interpersonal disputes that are carried out with handguns. And I think the connection between the gun industry's surging profits is between the gun industry surging profits and the more routine gun violence that we see every day in cities across the country warrants significantly more consideration than the connection between the gun industry's profits and these more unusual mass shootings. There's certainly consideration to be had about the kind of advertising that the gun industry does. The Sandy Hook parents in their lawsuit against Remington certainly explored that. But overwhelmingly, it's it's this handgun violence that causes the most gun deaths, and that the gun manufacturers have sort of the most power to arguably have the most power to reduce. Champ Barton, thank you. Thanks.
He's a reporter with The Trace, a nonprofit that reports on gun violence in America. Here you see James Craig Anderson in a hotel parking lot as he first comes into view in the lower right corner of the screen. This is after he was beaten, according to law enforcement officials. He staggers into the headlights of Mr. Deadman's truck. The truck backs up and surges forward suddenly, running right over the defenseless man. Take a look again as the approaching headlights glow on Anderson's shirt, then disappears under the truck. According to police, Deadman, with two teenage girls as his passengers, drove to a local McDonald's meeting up with the rest of the group. There, according to witnesses interviewed by police, he said, I ran that nigger over. We could have died. A near-death experience, Kristen Shelton and her 15-year-old son, Elijah, are alive to tell. We were walking across the street here. Walking Fox 31 through that incident today. Shelton says she and her son and dog were walking across the street with groceries when... I see my son step out, and then this car just floors it. She says a blue or black Mazda slammed on the gas and made a beeline straight for her son narrowly missing her and her dog with their car. As they're passing, that's when they're yelling the racial slurs. Elijah sprinting to the median to safety while the car sped off. I was shocked. I was like, I can't believe this. Like I was angry. I was I was furious. I was I was sad. I was scared. Like it was it was awful. Shelton telling me she saw two young white men in the car, both yelling the N-word among other hateful insults at her biracial son. My kid should not have to worry about riding his bike to work or crossing the street or, you know, walking to the bus without being targeted just because of the color of his skin. Unfortunately, Shelton says this isn't her son's first encounter with racism in Colorado, and the hate has to stop. I don't think that these incidents should be taken lightly. Hoping by sharing this experience that it will prevent it from happening again and lead to some accountability. They pose a threat to the community and more so to the minorities of the community. And and because of that, there should be consequences and they need to understand that there are consequences to their actions and I want charges pressed. Yeah. They're making it happen now. Yeah. We got the spirit, yeah. a lot of spirit, yeah. yeah. We got the spirit, yeah. just watch it happen now. Good evening once again. The suspected tops gunman back in front of a judge and some of the victim's families today. He is now facing unprecedented charges in New York State. An Erie County judge laid out the 25 charges against 18-year-old Peyton Gendron in his arraignment this afternoon. This case marking the first time that this domestic terrorism charge has been filed in New York State. 7 News senior reporter Eileen Buckley following these charges live outside the Erie County Courthouse tonight. Eileen. Ashley, the suspect accused of murdering 10 people at the Jefferson Avenue tops and injuring three appeared for his arraignment before Justice Susan Egan here in the Erie County Courthouse. Now, the 25 charges were read out and the defense entered a not guilty plea for him. And that was with a number of family members standing by in the courtroom to watch the proceeding. No cameras were allowed, but these court sketches were provided much like his May 19th appearance, the defendant was brought in, handcuffed and wearing an orange prison suit. One family member stood up as he walked in to get a good look at him 
but was told to be seated. The 25-count indictment includes a charge of domestic terrorism motivated by hate in the first degree, 10 counts of first-degree murder, 10 counts of second-degree murder as a hate crime, three counts of attempted murder as a hate crime, and criminal possession of a weapon. Now, Erie County District Attorney John Flynn met with reporters after the arraignment to explain the charges and why he brought a first-degree murder charge for all 10 people who were killed. I chose to charge 10 separate accounts to list by name the 10 victims because they deserve to be listed by name and he needs to be held accountable for all 10. That is why I chose to file 10 separate counts of murder in the first degree. Flynn saying today will be the last time he'll be commenting on the case. The defense had issued an earlier gag order, but Flynn says he made an agreement with the judge and the defense to only speak today to outline all of those charges. Now, Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown also appearing at the news conference today, saying the wheels of justice are moving quickly. The defendant will be back in court on July 7th. My colleague, Leah Landau, now joining me, who has reaction from the family. Sadly, one of the family members in the courtroom stood up afterwards crying and saying, he killed my sister. Just a heartbreaking scene. Heartbreaking all around here. And family members, of course, very emotional. They're hurting. They're going through the grieving process. And the ones I spoke with today, they tell me they're just downright angry. And they won't stop until they see justice. This, my friend, is something that will not, we will not be silent about it. It will not be has-been news. Michelle Spite and Dominique Douglas both lost loved ones in the mass shooting at Tops, Margus Morrison and Pearl Young. They tell me they won't rest until they see change. My Aunt Pearl and my cousin Marcus, they are worth every fight. And yep. until those laws are changed, yep. and until people that are representing us are held accountable, right. you all represent us. As for the suspect, they will not say his name, but they say they want him to spend the rest of his life behind bars. Justice doesn't look like a lethal injection. Justice to no. me means this person, this monster, this thug, sitting in a prison not confined, but an open population, and every night, every day, every second, every minute, every hour, accounting for all the horrendous things that he did. What is his punishment going to be? Because Absolutely. I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to see, because then I'm going to compare it to all the people whose whose cases have come up who don't look like him, and what their punishments have been. What does that change look like? It looks like legislation coming together to acknowledge that the system we have is not working and let's come together at a table from different communities. They say they'll make sure Margus Pearl and all those who perished in that shooting did not die in vain. He has six, six kids, a bonus daughter, daughters that will never have their father to take them to the prom, you know, walk them down the aisle, give them yep. a hug, call or text them. And so I, I would just like to challenge everyone to, you know, beyond all the politics, beyond what your opinion is, be human and think that, yeah, it's me today, but it could be you tomorrow. And they plan on taking their fight directly to Washington, where they tell me they will continue to hold lawmakers accountable until they see change there. Ashley. Powerful words, Leah. Thank you.
Context of White Supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 4, 2022. So I have been told uh, this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, uh, counter-racist suggestions to share. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Before we get to folks who have commentary questions to share, uh, one, we will be here on Monday. I guess that's June 6th. White guest, uh, specifically white woman. She is a historian in Buffalo. I could give her name. I'm just deliberately show up Monday. You'll find out. But she is a uh, historian and she had written like years before all of the white terrorism that we had last month uh, in Buffalo at the East Buffalo Tops. She wrote about the history of white supremacy racism, so-called segregation in Buffalo. Whole report, like I said, this was years, and then she came back and did another report more recently talking about all of this uh, in Buffalo. Uh, And so we will look at these reports, see if she talks about uh, Joseph Christopher. I believe I have to double check to see if she was actually born uh, like she's lived most of her life uh, in Western New York, in uh, the Buffalo area, Erie County, all of that. Uh, but I believe that might be the case. Uh, but certainly historian on that area writes, talks about it publicly and all the rest of it. Uh, so we will be here Monday, uh, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, We will chat it up. They said first time ever Peyton Gendron to have someone charged with domestic terrorism in the state of New York. Hmm. Certainly could have had opportunities for it to happen before, but nevertheless, Peyton Gendron. We will look forward to see how all of that unfolds and making our connections because now we know quite a bit about Buffalo history. Those of us who have been reading the book club, like, woo, if you have been with us for the book club, man, you should be excited, ready to roll and have some questions for Monday because she should know about Joseph Christopher. Uh, and the book club remains mandatory. This book is a little bit on the longer side. One, because this white killer the first time around in East Buffalo it took like eight months for them to apprehend this fella. So that's one of the reasons that this book is a little bit longer. But it is for sure mandatory for many, many reasons. I'm not even reading from the book. I'm reading from a newspaper article that is in line with where we are in the book. The chapters are by date. So by date, we are at October, I believe, 2nd through the 19th of 1980. When this becomes a, the first time around Buffalo Killings 22 caliber case, when it begins to become really big case, 
lots of attention internationally lots of people talking about this it was on Nightline I forgot that was something I was supposed to do if anybody wants to do some homework can you locate the October 1980 Nightline segment where they talked about the Buffalo killings if you can find it until justice at gmail.com because I would like to check that out Anywho, but the reason the book club is mandatory, one of the reasons, so this is from, as I said, International, the Toronto Star, uh, October 19, 1980, racial killings appall a rough, tough town. And they write an ugly time. The year 1980 is important for many reasons. Ronald Reagan run uh, the election, like, I guess, two weeks from the date of the article that I'm reading, right? Uh, lots of reasons. We talked about some of this in the book club. They write, it is an ugly, shaming time along the Niagara frontier. One, at the Bethlehem steel plant, a worker opened his locker and stared at a beef heart. Someone had stuck there. This was not anomalous for the people shameful who have not been following along in the book club so this happened after two black males were killed and had their hearts extracted beef heart in the locker two a cross was burned in the depths of the black ghetto I love that they wrote it that way should have just said niggerland or whatever it is they have pictures of the cross burning and they have video on YouTube three a Toronto man lost in the black east ghetto they don't say ghetto but I think it should was dragged from his car and beaten up rocks and bottles have been thrown at white drivers four and there are the giggly jokes now they have this four and this white man being assaulted three four racist joke buckle up I love this one the cops know who the murderer is he's a poker player he's already got four spades and two hearts I just told you victims Five and six black males killed had their hearts extracted. The first four black males were just, put that in quotes, killed. They got to keep their heart. Four spades, two hearts. This same thing happened after Peyton S. Gendron's terrorist attack they even had some white people who got fired for this same sort of behavior why is that they have a white supremacist who goes to kill black people in East Buffalo and we got to come up with jokes a whole bunch of them hmm book club is mandatory because like I said it wasn't just a one time thing somebody took the time even Think about that now. How many of you could put your hands on a cow heart or a big a pig heart? You just got a prank. How many of you could do that easily in the next 72 hours, next week, 
Hmm. Maybe they they bring that on Amazon. Maybe you can get that dropped off. Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White woman, white guests only, white female historian, and in the book club. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Jesse Jackson. We didn't get to the part about Jesse Jackson. Reading more important than watching television. Uh, that next. Uh, invest if you think the program the cows is constructive we are listener supported counter racist radio hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com my review of Will Smith King Richard right there and then PayPal button at the top right corner beneath PayPal you'll see links for Venmo cash app uh, and PayPal uh, much obliged for all the folks who have invested for 13 plus years. I hope the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy, especially so given all of the troubles and problems the last two plus years has brought for the world. We cannot be wasting time. Uh, in addition to Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, uh, you can also invest via our Amazon wish list under Gus T. Renegade, also linked at my blog. Huge thanks to all of the investors who have nabbed an item uh, or three over the years. I hope the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Next, let's see. Uh, The she whiz. Uh, let's see some of the reports. I did not include a report on the Tulsa, Oklahoma shooting that was important. Happened this week. Uh, after I thought about it, I said I will include this for workplace racism. Uh, one of the individuals, there were five fatalities, including the shooter. It's reported the non white male shooter took his own life. Uh, but uh, it's reported that the shooter was upset at his doctor. He had back pain and he was upset. I guess he felt he was not being treated correctly or whatever the issue. Uh, but the black doctor that was killed in this shooting, Dr. Preston Phillips, along with the three other victims, said, man, that's or at least I'm processing. We're going to talk about this uh, under workplace racism, uh, just because we've had so many discussions about workplace safety and violence and what to do and all the rest of it. This is why that's so important. So that certainly could have been played uh, about that incident that happened in Oklahoma. In fact, they said they uh, contacted Muskogee enforcement officers because there was there were reports, I guess, that the alleged gunman might have an explosive device at his residence or something. Uh, I said, oh, man. That's Mr. Fuller, where he was born. I wonder if he's been following all this. He keeps up with the news and what have you. But we easily could have included that. But workplace racism, we will discuss. And, I mean, they don't even have black male doctors. And then Dr. Phillips gets gunned down. And that's gunned down. I think they just acknowledged even suspected race soldier President Joe Biden just acknowledged 101 years since the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre and 300 probably more than that black people killed and then have this happen 
That is the system. Let's see. Next. So that'll be Thursday. We will discuss Dr. Phillips. Next. Uh, we heard the report on Star Wars, uh, and that was uh, KP or KCRW, KCRW, which is California Public Radio. And they had David Betancourt, black male victim of white supremacy, on the segment. Uh, and they were discussing Moses Ingram, black female, lovely actress, victim of racism. Uh, she's got this role uh, in the latest Star Wars franchise installment and all of these black people were upset and all the racism. Uh, I did appreciate that they acknowledged uh, that this is not the first time that we've had racism, white supremacy directed at a black uh, actress, actor in this series, John Boyega. And we, we talked about that, in fact, on the cows. I have to go back. That's on my blog as well. We had a guest post, I think that's like six years ago, somewhere in that time frame, when all of that went down. They had the, all of the racism way back then. Uh, but this is beyond Star Wars. Uh, folks want to talk about the Hunger Games. Remember that? Not that long ago. Totally different franchise. We want to keep it sci-fi. Same thing. Remember they got all upset about Rue? Oh my God, you got, she even has a white parent. So it's not like she has a lot of melanin. Lupita Nyong'o, no way. Even still, oh my God, they got this colored gal. And, uh, why is she in there? Even though I think her character is non-white in the book. Ah, she messed up the whole movie. And, uh, why is that the case? Because this is not a small community of trolls. They use that all the time. Troll racists? This is not a small community. This has been consistent. Now, if we want to keep it to the Star Wars franchise, so like, how far does this go back? Were they like calling Billy D. Williams a coon? Were they calling Sam Jackson a nigra? How far does this go back? You know, in the franchise? Hey, I mean, really, if you want to get it, uh, James Earl Jones, was he being called a coon? Voicing Darth Vader. I, if I'd had more time, hadn't had such a victimized week, I had so many options. I could have prefaced that segment with Mr. Fuller talking about, hey, racist man, racist woman, racist child. They have shown they have made their existence about practicing white supremacy. And that's it. He said, what's in their movies? Dark invader. Someone with a lot of color who's the most evil person in the planet we've got to do something about him Dr. Welsing that was another one which he talked about get dark and say that he is their father isn't that the movie he's the father and they're all upset about that like white genetic annihilation she said that lines right up with her her theory and why white people are doing all of this right in their stories narratives lots and just in terms of Hey, because I think they sent Moses Ingram. Nigra, we're upset. And they got her connected to Darth Vader, right? The black people, right? Could have played the Golden State Warriors are in the finals. Now, we had a program on Thursday, so priorities. I didn't get to see any of that. They used to, way back in the day, maybe they still do, for the visiting team, they played what I played the Imperial March. That's not the theme for Star Wars. That is specific. That is the theme for Darth Vader. The 
by many considered the greatest villain in the history of white supremacy entertainment, Hollywood. That is his theme music. That's what they play for the visitors, Golden State Warriors. Boo, boo, it's gonna play the most infamous of that game seven, 2016. First active billionaire LeBron James to be boo, boo. That's what they're playing. Darth Vader, the villain, boo. Moses Ingram, boo. That is the system of white supremacy race. And again, they might have been doing, I mean, all this started in the 70s. Like he said, Billy D. Williams had to be all kinds of coons and negras and everything else. Like, oh man. And I think he's like a traitor. That's like, not that I'm encouraging watching all this at all, but I think that's like how the story goes in Billy D. Williams, like a traitor. He gives up. Uh, white Jesus Luke Skywalker long tradition that's what you can expect nobody should be surprised about any of it uh, but trolls I thought the words in that segment words are so important uh, it's tr- calling them trolls right uh, and they said the blackness when blackness and the Star Wars community intersect or at least a small segment wrong this is racism white supremacy they do that all the time where the focus incorrectly is on the victims and particularly black people no this is when white supremacy intersects with Star Wars if we were in a world of justice who cares we just want a good story don't pull out anything lame and a bunch of Ewoks tell the story right make it you know exciting and whatever nah that's not what we have that's why none of this Hunger Games, Star Wars doesn't matter. We're going to sit around and complain. You got too many Negras in this film. Let's see. Lots of metaphors and I can come back to that one a few times. Uh, let's see. They had the segment talking about the famine uh, on the continent, East Africa specifically. I did think that was important because they we're describing that as a product of the conflict in the Ukraine. So that is a myriad of different ways because they've been talking a lot about the black students. We had that report two weeks ago. Uh, all of the problems for uh, people that are classified as black came there. They were born in the continent, but they were in Ukraine. Many of them students trying to learn, do something constructive. Now they got to flee for their life. No support, no help. Like, ah, get out of here. Go back to Africa. That's what they've been saying the whole time. Go back to Africa. So you got them and the non-constructive impact that this is having on them. And then you got people on the continent. It's millions of people not able to eat all the rest. Incidentally, that in and of itself, the continent having all those struggles with food, that is a product of white supremacy racism. You're talking about many regions that have a 12 month growth cycle. How are we struggling with food? Hmm usual suspects there too but I thought that was important global system of white supremacy racism did they have anything about white people did they say anything about white people in Europe or any place else they're about to starve because of the conflict in Ukraine or is it just the niggers who can't get any corn and wheat maybe I didn't listen enough let's see uh, so we had the two different reports about so called reparations in California 
I haven't lived in California in a minute, but I do try to keep up with news and events there. I know for one, they were unsuccessful, but they attempted to recall Governor Newsom for some of this being too so-called progressive. We don't like your policy, especially around COVID-19, which they saw as a nigger disease, right? They had to study about that. They are currently attempting to recall the district attorney in San Francisco, who is also classified as white. They are upset also. Don't like his his politics and what have you. Not pleased with the way that he's practicing white supremacy racism, trying to do what do they call it? Criminal justice reform and that sort of thing in San Francisco. Golden State Warriors. Let's talk about that. Maybe he's been too influenced by Steve Kerr, right? Coach of the Warriors and all. Maybe. If you are in California and you are a black person, I would pay close attention to all this. I mentioned Ronald Reagan before he was governor there. There are a lot of individuals who practice white supremacy racism. They just happen to live in the golden state. They would have you believe many victims. We get confused. Essie May in her book, she even said that she's, oh, my goodness. California, where it's amazing. I'm here. As bad as she described Seattle, she said it was racially harmonious here in Seattle. Same type of thing, but a lot of us get confused uh, about California. Man, I would not for a second think that they are going to sit around and publish some 500 page report about, oh, we have beat up the poor Negros and oh, we need to look out for the Negros of California. Are you out? After O.J. Simpson and Rodney King, you think we are okay? (laughs) Like, if you are a classified as black, you live in California, I would pay attention, read the report, but I would just be mindful uh, of what white people are up to in the state. They're having, like, no metaphor, water wars. You can't even water your lawn, and we're going to do reparations for the Negras? And I mean anything. (laughs) Like, a free broomstick, a bark, anything, a gas card, anything. Okay. Even the second clip where they talked about in Boyle Heights and some of these specific areas, now that's LA specifically, that's not even the whole state, where they're going to let them choose how to allocate like $8.5 million taxes. Uh, pitiful, all of that. Uh, but even that the resentment because they said some people might think that this is not fair that was the word used you all get to do this we would like to do this and they were hey we've been subjected to environmental racism and underserved and all the rest we don't even care (laughs) we're dedicated in fact we joke about mistreating black people even carving their hearts out so I mean environmental racism and all that like who cares I would be super mindful of all of that if you are a resident of California see how and particularly because this is something that might take some time this might be a year maybe even two three years in the development just be mindful so it can be something you can research and teach your children about racism maybe you all can even read some of that report together see if you can I say that all the time learn about local history uh, let's see next uh the prison violence and this that was uh, federal prisons where they're talking about having all these white supremacist gangs now I said now wait a minute wait a minute they said that these fellas the white supremacist gang you've killed this 
person who's so-called Jewish. Um, you've got portraits of Adolf Hitler, Nazi paraphernalia. How are you allowed to have Nazi paraphernalia in greater confinement? You can't have a Swahili dictionary. Do they have a history of putting people in concentration camps in areas on the continent where they speak Swahili? I know that's one of the languages that's pretty widely spoken on that continent. Like, do they have a, a history of, of doing that? Swahili, they got Swahili codes, go out and abuse and make gangs and stab people and all the rest of it, crush their skull. They got They got codes in Swahili for doing all that. You can have, and they, safety, that was the justification that they gave, right, for, eh, no Espanol, can't have that dictionary, no way, get that out of here, no way. Incidentally, also, Neely Fuller Jr.'s book, I am told, not the word guy, but I guess that too, but the code book, banned, said the same thing, safety, this advocates violence. So... Neely Fuller Jr.'s code book, eh. Swahili Dictionary, eh. Spanish Dictionary, eh. I'm surprised you don't have any correctional officers or what have you that speak Espanol, like for real? Okay, uh, all that's banned. Nazi paraphernalia? Mm, all right. <laughs> like, really? system of white supremacy but this is the federal prison where you can't do anything about all of these white supremacist gangs like really you can't put them in different cells so Khalif Browder right you know how to put people in solitary confinement they misbehave steal a backpack right you know how to do all that right mm. Mr. Fuller did I, that was the one could have played that as well he did say hey prisons that's what it used to be like about a hundred years ago. That's what uh, the movie that Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman, the great Morgan Freeman, Andy Dufresne said, uh, that's Tom Robbins, my bad, Tim Robbins. Uh, but his name is Andy Dufresne. Uh, that, that used to be prison. You go to prison, that could pretty much be a death sentence, even if you didn't get a death sentence. Expect to die, be beaten to death, or what have you, like all that. Like, hey, that's just prison. He said, it could get like that again. There you go. That's something. I mean, now, how many reports have we heard over the years as well about all these prison gangs and gladiator wars and putting hot sauce on the genitals and all the rest of it? Like, wow. Hmm. I'm going to stay out of greater confinement. And again, what does it mean to be white? If they like all of this, they enjoy all of this. Wow. What part of white culture is that? This is what you like. Prison gangs go and beat people and all kinds of ghoulish things. Sodomize folks. Ah, yes. Mm. Call it correctional. White culture. Uh, let's see. All of the firearm uh, dialogue 
if you don't understand white supremacy racism dr wells it's dr francis cress welsing said it infinitely better than i if you do not understand white supremacy racism you will be eternally confused about all of this gun rhetoric and why can't we make changes and all the rest of it i mean even pause on all of that uh some of our listeners they posted photographs of whites boasting bragging showing off all of their firearms unless i've been misinformed there are more firearms than people in the u.s they could totally halt making firearms for like the next five years we would still be awash in weaponry white people would not run out any time no time I mean just look I think it's recent on my timeline bragging about the number of guns that they have the great equalizer indeed you will not understand and and it's all rhetoric again that's another one we should have all heard all of this by now should be very tired mm-hmm. wait till whatever the next massacre is of non-white people and again Dr. Welsing theorized there would be more of these white people and especially white men attacking black people particularly population numbers and now they're talking about reparations and all the rest that's pretty much in the vein of what Peyton Gendron charged domestic terrorist that's kind of what he was talking about and Dylan Roof and Joseph G. Christopher but we haven't got that far in the book yet Uh, let's see Oh, yeah, Peyton Gendron, domestic terrorism charges. I was curious since they said, hey, since we're debuting charges, they did all that talking about the Emmett Till anti-lynch crime bill. Why isn't this a lynching? Does this not qualify? Did I miss something? Am I misinformed? Are they waiting? Are those charges going to come later? If it doesn't qualify, you can just let me know because I am retarded and I don't think they've used it. That sort of thing, though, if he is not because this would seem like, hey, if anybody is going to be charged with a lynching, if it's not going to be Carolyn Bryant Dunham for her role in the castration and murder of Emmett Till, it's got to be Peyton Gendron, right? If it's not going to be either of those two white people, that would just remind me of our discussion about all this at the beginning when we said, huh, are they going to be targeting black people and just wait for them to say some sort of so-called racist slur or whatever? And then bingo, we got our first person that's going to be charged with the Emmett Till anti-lynching hate crime bill. Someone black, maybe even for beating up or killing someone black. Might even pick Chicago as a test site. They love that. Black on black crime, they love to say. But if I missed that, just let me know. Maybe I didn't get to, you know, study enough this week. Peyton Gendron, did he not get lynching crime? Does that not qualify? Maybe I didn't read the bill close enough. Maybe that just, it doesn't fit. Anywho, uh, as I ask every week, importantly, for this week this episode if we could not use metaphors I have never said when I make this request 
that, hey, I have beef with metaphors, metaphor right there. I've got some sort of vendetta. I'm angry about metaphors. You come in here using all these similes, analogies, comparisons. Oh, it boils my I've never said that. What I've said practically every week is that metaphors. Hey, race soldiers are extraordinary at using metaphors to deceive. I say that pretty much every week. Further, I add that non-white people. Hey, frequently we are still learning. Gus included. We have not come to conclusions on some matters which is totally fine sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our views and we'll substitute and use a metaphor or an analogy this frequently contributes to confusion that's what I say pretty much every week nowhere in that segment or in what I just said did you hear me say Please don't use metaphors because I don't like them. Words are critically important to counter racism and solving this problem. Huge. I mean, if it's nothing else, if you don't do anything else, I'm at least going to try to be better with my use of words. Being as accurate as I can, I'm not going to rely as Especially, especially if I am speaking, writing about white supremacy, racism, I'm going to make every effort to not rely on metaphors. I'm going to try to be as specific, as precise as I can. Make sure that I am not contributing to confusion as best that I can. That is very different than saying I don't like metaphors and I'm just placing emphasis because I've heard lots of cows listeners of late around the world. That's what they'll say that I know you don't like metaphors, Gus, and then they'll use metaphors. <laughs> no, Priscilla, and I've even pointed out some of the times that they do this. I don't really understand what you're saying because there's no precision here. Like we started off talking about correct eating or counter racism and now <laughs> well you know the closed mouth does not get fed what <laughs> what what? <laughs> like, what did we get to delectable negro like what precision is a huge aspect of counter racist science pretty please if we could refrain from using the metaphors all of us will work to be precise, exact with what it is that we're saying. And just with the importance of words. Oh, my goodness. For years, and I mean, like literally for years. Neely Fuller Jr. in his word guide, specifically honorary white. Do not use we have had and I mean people who will come and I love me some Neely Fuller Jr. and oh brothers and sisters Neely Fuller Jr. and I listen to talk tainment every day and brothers and sisters I love me some Neely Fuller Jr. you know I got to talk about those honorary whites for a minute it's like what? 
yes we all love brother fuller uh brother fuller did say uh honorary white and i mean this is not like a casual one he does talk all the time about major strategies and racial classification confusion that right there is a part of it honorary white is not a racial classification for some reason victims of racism just are enamored like we just gotta find oh yeah at minimum if you're not sure i'm just not sure is this person classified as white yes or no not honorary white and even last week we got a twofer honorary white and adjacent white the only reason that I'm bringing this up is because the power of words all you have to do is say something and it gets repeated often that's what happens and that's what happened even with white adjacent now I even took time last week to say it. Retired firefighter repeatedly has come on, pulled out the word guide. Boom, boom, boom. Red, honorary white. I have pulled out my red word guide. Red, honorary white. The classifications, are you white? Yes, no. I have never in 13 years asked anyone on the program, are you honorary white? It is always, are you white? Yay or nay? That is it that right there honorary white and then like I said someone emailed me within 72 hours of last week and they said I think the Uvalde shooter is a non-white person white adjacent I don't even know what that means white non-white we do not need any any new racial classifications white non-white and especially honorary white. like from this point forward I totally like I don't do interrupting and normally wig out people interrupting me name calling is one already said that any name calling of non-white people you for sure are getting interrupted I might have to interrupt folks for honorary white from now on because it's just like we've been here for 13 years some people have been here listening for years honorary like that is not helping to solve any problems it is not adding any clarity it is not any more precise than white non-white again if we are confused and that happens to Gus I just say I don't know I'm still learning I'm gonna have to study this person ask more questions to see is this someone that is classified as white yay or nay not adjacent white off-white sometimes white would like to be white are you classified let me see what's on your driver's white because I don't think they have that as an option honorary white adjacent white I don't think any of those are options might be changing you know white people get really goofy with those classifications because they are not confused it is just us pretty please no matter and that's a really that is a metaphor for sure but pretty please no metaphors no new racial classifications if it's not asking too much can we please never for any reason use the word honorary white on this broadcast the cows ever again
Thank you kindly. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. First few folks who dialed in. If you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Uh, The uh, DCS meeting today was canceled. Uh, I think uh, someone other than myself has been uh, watching the news. Actually, it's went national about the quote-unquote flooding in uh, South Florida, some kind of storm, uh, hurricane season, what is called hurricane season, uh, started uh, on June the 1st, and uh, uh, then a series of uh, just long drizzling type of raining, that sort of thing. So uh, I was not informed of whether or not there was going to be a meeting today. So I called uh, Mr. Clark and uh, he was uh, up and available to uh, confirm for me that it was, was going to have a meeting. Uh, anyway, uh, if, if it was, I was going to show them uh, the, uh, the movie, well, Denzel Washington was uh, a uh, newly hired head football coach due to uh, racism, white supremacy, the changes that took place in and around when I was in uh, high school uh, to whereas the system of racism, white supremacy was refining itself and, quote, unquote, doing something called integrating the public schools. And uh, I was going to show them that movie because it's not really about football, so to speak. Uh, and uh, basically on uh, his uh, behavior uh, in the workplace uh, with white people. Uh, I would I would have been pointing those things out to the young fellas uh, because they would eventually uh, would be in that same position where they are working in close proximity with white people uh, and to they must be informed to what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. And uh, movies, especially with people they recognize, uh, like Mr. Washington, uh, would be something that you it could be a lot easier to teach behind. Uh, but there's always next week. Uh, also, with 
you know, if you have a truck, I don't too much worry about flooding, uh, you know, because uh, that's one reason why I bought a truck. Uh, this week, uh, uh, we had a, we meaning the people in the little small area where I stay at, uh, it's like a cul-de-sac. Uh, and, uh, we have, uh, these, uh, neighbors meetings and meet on the street corner. And basically, uh, in most cases, uh, a representative from the city of Miami gardens law enforcement also would be there to give a report on criminal act, quote unquote, criminal activity in the area, uh, there was a surprise visit by the mayor of Miami Gardens, who I know personally because I coached with him uh, years ago. Uh, and uh, he was there with some people from his staff. Uh, and also the person that drove him there was a law enforcement officer. So there were two law enforcement officers there. I was prompted to ask the mayor when the questions period came up, uh, is the city of Miami gardens law enforcement committed to protecting the lives of our children, uh, and prepared if something, uh, happens in the area, such as what took place in Texas. Uh, he was, prepared to answer the question. Uh, and also the question was also to the, the two law enforcement officers, one, a non-white black male, and the other one appears to be a white male. Uh, and uh, the mayor also should be able to answer the question also, being that he's the mayor. Uh, he's not a, he's not, a law, uh, well, he is a law enforcement officer uh, by trade, uh, uh, probationary officer, so to speak. And he, that's connected with law enforcement, but uh, and also by being a mayor, I know he gets briefed on such things. Should anyway, uh, he was they were he was prepared to answer the question. But what what I didn't like, and it's similar to what you were saying, he was being interrupted. <laughs> He was being interrupted by people uh, that shouldn't, well, you should be interrupted in any way. But, and I asked one person who interrupted, and I said, uh, ma'am, are you a law enforcement officer? And she said, no. I said, well, I, I, I wanted the, the, the experts to answer the question, you know, uh, if you don't mind. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they answered the question. Uh, but the bottom line is I, I also, uh, asked that question. So it'll be on record by the, uh, people who stay in the area. Also the residents that the mayor did, uh, make a commitment, uh, state that, that, uh, the law enforcement is committed. The law enforcement, enforcement officers that were there also stated that they were, that, that, that they were committed and they prepared, they are prepared for something of that nature to take place. Uh, hopefully uh, we don't have to see 
<laughs> see if that's true. Uh, but uh, also the whole idea about uh, whether or not a person would be committed from the standpoint of going into uh, someone firing and uh, these some some of these people who are not law enforcement officers uh, probably have never been uh, in a dangerous situation with staying where you have to wait for that to happen. And uh, I didn't think that was uh, correct anyway or, or true. Uh, you can find that out before an incident actually takes place. A lot of those people who who I worked with on the fire department, they were in combat in Vietnam. <laughs> so uh, they were not unfamiliar with dangerous situations, I'll put it that way. But anyway, uh, that's all I have to say, uh, and thanks for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, good job with the questions, and I mean, really, anybody uh, public service enforcement officers, uh, teachers, uh, superintendents, all of those folks, in, employers, HR, uh, all of those folks should be ready with questions on. Yes, we have had extensive dialogue on safety, whether it's keeping uh, students, children safe or keeping our employees safe. Like, yes. I'm so glad that you asked that question, sir. And bam, bam, bam. Yes, we are all the way. We've talked about all of this and plans and making sure we've updated policy and procedure. And if, you know, something should happen. Yes, we are. We are not going to be sitting around twiddling our thumbs and confusing. What are we? we That's not going to happen here. Like everybody should be super ready. Who is in any, you know, sort of position of, uh, Authority, where they're supposed to be in charge of safety at public events, that sort of thing. Absolute no putting. This is a time for no pussyfooting. Really, it should be no metaphors. It should be super specific and detailed. Yes, we are prepared yes. to keep people safe, and this is how to do it. Boom, 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 and just go through right down, you know, the list. But yeah, that is as we would expect from retired firefighter hmm. safety uh, let's see uh, other folks who dialed in and see that interrupt that's definitely a time where I do not want a whole lot of interrupting even if you think what he's saying is a bunch of rubbish and nonsense like shh let's be quiet so then we can hear how much rubbish does we have here like is it all rubbish or whatever it is like let's make sure we get it all and then we can go to town. That is the procedure. Not, uh, yeah, become. That's why I hit mute. Talk to white people all the time. I do not sit here and, oh my God, cracker, you cut. Mute. They were acting like it was a too challenging of a question. That, that's what that's what I thought out of out of them. The reasoning for them interrupting that it was too challenging of a question. Well, maybe I should have asked them, well, what what color socks you wearing? Uh, 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 Mr. Mayor, you know, I mean, something easy. <laughs> no. They just, we've had shootings at, at the school, the hospital, the grocery store, just in the last right. 30 days. I mean, hey, 
everybody should be super concerned about safety even if you got your gun we had that report on you know all the profits and everything okay fine everybody's armed great i still would like to know what because my child is not armed they're not old enough yet i might not be able to grab my gun if i'm at the grocery store and i got my cabbage and bok choy in my hands might not be able to get to my gun fast enough peyton gendron might get the drop on me Right. Uh, can, can you hear me good? Our caller in Alabama, yes, sir. Oh, how you doing, man? Are you sure you can hear me? Because my phone looks like it's muted. It, <laughs> it, can y'all hear me clearly? We can hear you clearly, sir. Cool, cool. Appreciate it. My bad. It says mute. I thought I muted my line already, but um. Yeah, I, I I was thinking yesterday, and I don't know if y'all discussed this or not, but um, I was just thinking yesterday while I was getting some Taco Bell, man. I said, now these white people are supposed to be so mad about Russia and Ukraine that Peyton Gendry drove past I don't know how many Russian enclaves to go target a black neighborhood and shoot up a grocery store. That show you like like how serious this Russian Ukraine thing is. You see what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, it might be a little side note, but their real enemy is always gonna be always who it has been, right? Black people. Victims of racism. And it's just, you know, like you, you made a great point. You made a great point um, on how the DOJ and Biden and all them are dragging their feet on charge of Peyton Gendrews with, with, with the anti-lynching bill. I actually added, you know, like on Twitter, like when you add people and stuff like that, you know, call them out. I actually added um, Joe Biden, POTUS, you know, um, about that. I was like, you know, is like, are you going to charge him with the – are you going to um, enforce your anti-lynching bill? Uh, does a rope have to be used? That's that's the stipulation. it got to be a rope. If it ain't no rope used, uh, it don't count. You see what I'm saying? And a second thing is I, I, um, I'm, I'm noticing about that U-Blood situation. I think it's real important. I don't – see it happening, but I think because the media is not doing it. They go straight from that to, hey, we got to take the guns. We got to take the guns. But I think it's real important, and I think the media have blood on their hands as well as the Supreme Court because their decision that they made back in 2005 that police are not obligated to protect American citizens it's just dangerous. That's a dangerous ruling. And in and, and, and media, the fact media is not even mentioning that ruling, that's, that's, blatant, that's blatant racism, man, blatant racism. And they're not ignorant about that ruling. It's just that they don't want to mention that. It's not beneficial because that ruling was supposed to be targeting non-white people, right? But... 
I'm, you know, I mute my line. That's, that's all I had on my mind right there. And I hope everybody's been doing well. And Gus, congratulations on your um, little rap, or your little rap, whatever like that. And um, much obliged, much obliged, sir. Good to hear from you, caller in Alabama. Um, I will say, well, you know, victims guarantee qualified, but I mean, wow. Gus T is someone like you know being transparent I am someone like oh man I have eaten like my share retired firefighter share caller in Alabama share and maybe even somebody else's share of Taco Bell chili cheese burritos nacho supreme you name it like man my tubby days I loved me some Taco Bell Tubby, I mean, that is horrible. Like, oh, that right, that right there is racism, white supremacy. Um, all of us doing as best we can to eat better, way better uh, than Taco Bell. Uh, I know for some of us, we're not, you know, brilliant chefs, or we don't have time. Racists do that a lot to us as well. Uh, we don't have time uh, to go and whip up healthy meals and or Peyton Gendron is at the tops so there are lots of reasons why we struggle uh, to be able to eat well but yeah that is that is exactly what racist man racist woman racist child intend for us to be eating Taco Bell fresh fruits veggies uh, eat to live uh, eat to be here for a long I mean that's just like super processed foods super synthetic artificial like everything <laughs> like the tomatoes are probably artificial too um and then lots of fat and oh my gosh and they microwave too like it's it's just oh man and, and the plastics i forgot that was one we got from shauna swan's book count down uh which she talked about in addition to everything else that i mentioned and probably a whole lot of other things all of that uh yumminess is in contact with a lot of plastic uh, to get it to you and yeah I mean it's just oh man um, eat better eat better and I even have pictures I was so much of a Taco Bell fan I made plant based chalupas and made them from scratch made the wraps the cheese plant based the cheese all of it um, I have pictures I'll post them but yeah, you can eat really, really well. Tacos, nachos, all of that, and way better than Taco Bell. Like, oh. <sighs> Much obliged. Uh, other folks uh, who have commentary, proceed. Rob, you are. Uh, Rob in Southern California. Uh, greetings. Uh, Gus and uh, greetings. To, uh, the callers and the listeners. Uh, so, uh, the first thing I wanted to speak on was uh, <clears throat> the clip where Millie Fuller spoke about uh, giving uh, fire water to the uh, people classified as Indians. And that made me think about my transition uh, from Milwaukee to. 
California. Um, so in the state of Wisconsin, um, you can start buying alcohol at 9 a.m. And, and this is uh, from a liquor store. Um, and <clears throat> you can last buy alcohol uh, from the liquor store at 9 p.m. in the state of Wisconsin. So in the state of California, uh, you can start buying alcohol at 6 a.m. And um, I think most places in California stop selling alcohol at 12 a.m., but um, there are some places, uh, liquor stores, that stop stop selling alcohol at 2 a.m. Um, and that's just uh, an observation that I had. Um, alcohol is a, uh, in my observation, is a very addictive substance um, for people uh, that engage it. And uh, the next thing that I wanted to speak on is uh, the uh, Jewish uh, person that got beat to death um, in prison, uh, assaulted by two people. And I wanted to speak on that for two reasons. Uh, being in greater confinement, um, I understand um, how you can encounter uh, situations that are uh, very unsafe. And so uh, that uh, that really stood out to me. And then the second uh, thing uh, about that <clears throat> clip that stood out to me was uh, I've been assaulted by two people um, and I'm still dealing with the uh, complications from that assault 10 years later. Um, so to hear um, that this uh, young man lost his life um, from being assaulted by two individuals, uh, I feel uh, grateful um, that I'm still living, um, that I'm still able to uh, get up and do the things that I need to do on a daily basis, although those things are done differently. And uh, the last thing that I wanted to speak on is that I work with a non-white uh, female classified as uh, Japanese, and she's from Japan. Uh, she's been in the United States for about four years. And so we were having a conversation at work, and she told me that, well, let me add this part first. She learned how to speak English since she's been in the United States. And so the thing that she told me, she said, I thought that uh, when I was in Japan, I thought that black people were rich. She said, I thought that black people had more money than white people um, when I was in Japan until I got to the United States and I um, saw things differently. Uh, that really stood out to me. And she also said that she did not know what uh, the gym shoe uh, 
Michael uh, Jordan's work while she was in Japan. She said she didn't learn what those were until uh, she got to the United States. And this is a female um, around the age of 31 or 32 years old. And uh, thank you for letting me share. I'm in Milan. Michael Jordan didn't become a billionaire when he was active. Maybe if he had, she would have known about his shoes already. Uh, much obliged, Rob in San Diego. That fire water uh, is indeed addictive and heavily promoted. My goodness, can't go anywhere without, even at work <laughs> without it being uh, promoted. So, yeah, I know here in uh, Washington. I remember that was something that stood out to me when I moved west, getting to California. And going like, wow, you can buy tequila at the grocery store. Like, that is crazy. And now they've had that here in Washington State for the past decade or so. Um, where, yeah, I don't even know. I'm not a drinker, so I don't know. But I think uh, at least before the Rona, we had grocery stores that were open 24 hours. So you had a pretty large window, meaning time, where you could purchase alcohol, like early in the morning and way late at night and just go to the grocery store, hit the Piggly Wiggly. And like I said, get your, you know, fifth of Patron or, you know, whatever you fancy. Um. The prison report, as I said, hey, Mr. Fuller talked about that. Like, hey, that just used to be common knowledge. Like, you go to prison, oh, well, you're going to die or could die. Highly likely could be that way again. And it is that is the system of white supremacy. Like whether I mean, really, whether it's tops, prison, whatever it is, racists are supposed to keep us safe. Obviously, they do not. or We would not be in this problem. But I mean, they are in charge. So all those situations they said the guards did they do anything other than say oh hey fellas don't uh don't kick his brains in please did you do anything else to stop all this and then mocked his death now where have i heard that before hmm again you can't get a spanish or swahili dictionary Nazi paraphernalia a-okay anywho much obliged Rob in Southern California uh, other folks who dialed in uh, if you have commentary to share oh Bay Area mom with us as well she might be getting ready for her reparations check down there <laughs> thank you um, right right I Oh, my breath. Um, yeah, oh, dear. No, I'm not getting ready for it, but it made me think election time and bringing up reparations. Um, I noticed in the clip that you played uh, with, the, uh, I guess, a sound like a Caucasian lady talking to a, a black lady and um, how uh, they're so clever with words, even though we're only talking about this particular repair, repair for us. And it's always like, okay, well, we'll give you maybe a minimum wage raise or some other little goodies, but that's not really repair. That doesn't even make any sense. Or maybe some kind of housing benefit. That doesn't, it's not repair. But anyway, when the, the uh, 
black lady was explaining how it was going to go, the white lady, it kind of interjects, like, you know, there's a lot of people, leprechauns, you know, there's always other people that have been um, mistreated uh, and had different um, uh, um, engagements with white people as well, um, gays, all that, all the different nationalities. And she said, well, we're just talking about this. Well, so how would your thing go? So it's just they, they're always uh, resistant when it comes to talking about what we need. They group, group us up. And even with the LGBT uh, and so forth community, that's where we get, if you want any kind of um, acknowledgement for being um, mistreated, you got to go in those groups. Um, I just thought that was interesting. So I don't even anticipate a repair check. And if they do cut us a check, it's going to be so small. It's not going to repair any damage. It'll just be something to pacify. It's kind of like those little stimuluses or the unemployment boost. But that's not, but that will, if they do it like that, Gus, that will say, hey, we gave you your reparations. Nope, nope, nope. You got repair. Um, uh, oh, the Asian communities. Um, not. I wonder. If, I hope that was just today. It wasn't workplace racism yesterday. But anyway, I do remember hearing an uh, Asian community uh, um, saying that they didn't have. Um, they were having um, issues, um, and some of the places were uh, not being as patronized as they were before, and they were going through a lot of uh, white terror. But when it they say it's us, like during the pandemic, when they needed that emergency money because they weren't getting any black business because we were doing our own nails and using the uh, DHL, is that the DHL? Bands to order our own hair and instead of going to the beauty supply, they, they made it to where black people were, they were very clear on who was mistreating the Asians. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I understand the agents aren't white, but I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Good, good luck, guys, over there. Um, what else was in the clip? Oh, oh, you guys were just talking about alcohol, and the I remember listening to the clip with the fire water, uh, and how they always use alcohol is very addicting, and I know in like maybe in Oakland. I remember watching, like, advertisements, especially in the uh, 70s, and their uh, um, main uh, highlight was Seagram's Gin. And then I noticed a lot of different kind of people, they drink Seagram's Gin to where it's like a tradition passed down. Maybe your grandma drank it, and then your mom drank it, and then you drink it, and then, I don't know why I love this gin. Oh, that's probably programmed in you, and you're probably addicted now. Um, I think that's it. And thank you for taking my call. I'll need my line. Much obliged, Seagram's Gin. I'm through. Um, I mean, but seriously, just like with those menthol cigarettes and how uh, Newports 
menthol Newports got passed down generations of black people with lung cancer and every black people smoke menthol cigarettes and don't know why that same type of thing I'm, hey we did mention Billy D. Williams I'll even pause right there because I did stop to look uh, so I said now how long has this been going on uh, University of Wisconsin Rob in Milwaukee uh, Professor Greg Carter uh, apparently his, a part of his studies and research is the Star Wars franchise and racism so he did an interview and he was asked specifically about Billy D. Williams and if he got any racism with this coming as I said in the 70s what was his experience so his response it was incredibly revolutionary for Lucas to cast the African-American actor even that prominently Lando Calrissian was a developed character who contributed to the story he's in two of the movies and he has a positive legacy at the same time Lando was a sidekick to Han Layla and Luke three squarely white people I have not run across backlash to Billy D. Williams casting hmm that kind of reactionary hostile racist attitude seems to take off later with the prequel movie so that would be the film starting with like Samuel L. Jackson the beginning of uh, the 2000s hmm that is amazing uh, for that like that time period the 70s and what have you well I guess it wasn't a franchise at first like the first film so maybe there wasn't that's interesting no 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 ugliness anyway beyond all of that uh, Billy D. Williams in addition to Star Wars I think also is known for Colt 45 liquor fentanyl lots of their narcotics they find ways of peddling them to non-white people and just as Mr. Fuller has said many many times uh, things can have an effect on white people but they generally will have a substantially worse impact on non-white people and you see that consistently alcohol fentanyl whatever it happens to be way worse on black people sobriety would be best uh, let's see star six one other folks that they have uh, commentary to share I do want to make sure that I get in uh, just before you know I forget or what have you the segment where they talked to the mom in Colorado white mom in Colorado and her child son non-white so-called biracial talk about racial classification confusion uh, he is almost hit by the car one I was struck in the report they made mention like twice of the dog I put the dog barking sound effect in like I'm I said man I posted the picture of my plant based chalupa right I brag about being plant based and all that years now right uh, I'm all about, you know, hands off the, the animals and the cows are, are not food, the chickens and all the rest of it. So certainly I'm not about beating up on the dogs, Mike Vick. But like my child was almost and, and, the, and the dog. He almost got Fido too. Did I, did, they almost got the dog, see? Then again, not that I'm for cruelty to animals, right on for vegans. Now, we've had so many reports about 
one just black people trying to cross the street but then that's something else that's not oh it takes a little bit longer for you to go across the crosswalk or people don't want to pause for you that is deliberate terrorism I see a black person and bam I mash on the gas and oh dang he got almost got him we have heard way too many reports about that just since the pandemic Iris said she saw the same type of thing. It was a black mother with her child like in the stroller. Well, I mean, we're talking like a, you know, one year old, something, two year old baby. Same type of thing. And it's been other reports uh, of white people going out, terrorizing black people on the road, driving by, yelling slurs and all of that. I would be really mindful uh, if you, you know, are out walking. This is even one when Dr. Kanban, when he talks about being out late, I would really try to minimize that driving or even, you know, going out and walking late and what have you. But just be mindful about that. You have so many individuals. You want to talk about road rage, road racism. I'm going to say racism, but I mean, that is terrorism. That's just Peyton Gendron, you know, Dylan Roof in another form. Daryl Deadman. I don't even have to give that's play that all the time because I suspect that's another one we probably forgot about. James Craig Anderson, 2011. They got that on video. Ran that nigger over. And Chip did the exact same thing. Bragged, celebrated. You see, we ran him over. <laughs> be my and even tell if you have you know people that you know they're out and about and uh, be alert. Don't think just, you know, I'm in the crosswalk or whatever. So be alert. Number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. Uh... Other folks, commentary that they wanted to add. Definitely, I say something else. Our Bay Area mom, yes, ma'am. Um. So yes, uh, Blitz Malt Liquor Bull and Colt Forty Five is what I remember, and um just to get us hooked because I know we like Billy D because he was very visually um, appealing. He would just bust through the walls like the Kool-Aid guy. And yeah, he totally sold malt liquor in the seventies, totally. And the cool cigarettes just kind of went hand in hand. Um, they do use uh, celebrities and things that we like to get us to market to, towards us because we accept it um, as far as a marketing um, scheme, the scheme to me, because they're targeting particular people. And, um, that, that's all I wanted to add, um, and I'll meet my line. Yeah, could I be heard? Our caller in Alabama. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I had a drop call when I was just saying about it. I mean, not not goodbye about me and my line, but I was just saying that I hope everybody doing well. I haven't heard, I haven't called in in a minute. Well, I have called in, but I'll be listening. But 
I, I wanted to add though, um, I don't, I didn't hear any response on it, but because, like I said, my call, I, I had a drop call, but I do think that the media has blood on their hands for not addressing the Supreme Court ruling that the police have no obligation to protect people, you know, and I think that's very dangerous that they made that decision, and you know, I don't know. They should, the media should be called out for it as well as the Supreme Court, you know. Oh yeah, by the way, by the way, I eat Taco Bell good, but you gotta understand, I'm a truck driver, man. Sometimes I'll be in the middle of nowhere. That's the only food I can get for that day. You see what I'm saying? So, but I try to eat healthy. I try to eat healthy. You know, I'm. Five eight, hundred and sixty three pounds, man. You know, I'm pretty in shape, you know, other compared to other injuries I got. You know, just from working, but you know, I try to stay healthy and you are right. We do have to eat better, bro. I mean, good. I'm muted my I'm muted my line because I don't want to turn. Much obliged, sir. Much obliged. I was uh Chuckling, they got to slip that brother in. <laughs> Much obliged, though. Glad to hear that you are eating. Uh, but we talked about that for workplace racism. Like I said, like, man, I do not, you know, do the judgment thing because I've never uh, done any sort of like drive, like distance driving, truck driving, anything like that, where you're going to be, you know, going, traveling over different states and, you know, time zones and all of that. Uh, even then, though, that said, then it would just be about planning because now it's 2022. They have so many like, man, gadgets and technology and such like they have uh portable like refrigerators when i say like portable like the size of a lunchbox <laughs> like portable refrigerators yeah my and... fridge went out though my fridge oh. went out twice i got a shred <sighs> in my truck yeah. <sighs> just life it's just life you know you're right you're right you're but right. but i try to cook i did even post videos where i cook i like you know i grew up cooking you know what i'm saying so i cook out but i'm still i'm not gonna lie I'm not. I'm not healthy as to be. I eat soul food. I'm Alabama, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I eat soul food. You know what I'm saying. But I try to replace the ham hocks with smoked turkey, and that's a good replacement. Like the most healthiest replacement. You know, like smoked turkey tail, stuff like that. You know. But I can improve. Still learning. You know, this little racist. Amen. Amen. Still learning. Still learning. Um, yeah, but I would, I would, oof, Taco Bell would be like once a year, and, and then try and see if we can do never with Taco Bell. Like, oof, that, again, lots of chili cheese burritos right here. Mm, 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 mm. Taco Bell. Um, and as far as the police. I guess you can see what I think is a priority. Like the food thing is way more important um, than the police thing. At any rate, uh, one of our listeners mentioned that last week in terms of the court ruling. He thought it also was uh, very important. Our caller in Ohio um, talked about that. And I think I don't know if they have talked about the Supreme Court decision like in detail, but I know I've heard a number of reports with regards to the Uvalde, Texas shooting and even though the enforcement officers have said, you know, we didn't follow our training, we haven't done the right thing I think they've said pretty consistently, 
that there's no like criminal liability uh, or anything from, you know, a legal standpoint where they could be sued or anything because of the decision. Like they've, I don't know if they've talked about it in detail, but I've heard them say that like repeatedly. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, may, it might just be that I've missed programs where they've talked about the Texas shooting and then brought up that Supreme court uh, decision specifically. But yeah, I think it's, it's understood. It should be people if they paid attention, like, yeah, there's not going to be any sort of, you know, you should have gone in and blah, blah, blah. And all the rest of it. And I think for both sides, I think for most black people, I think they already grasp at some level that enforcement officers do not seem to be about protecting black people. White yeah, people. they killed my homeboy last year. They broke my homeboy Nick. I, I'm, I'll send you a link if um, you, you state your email. But they broke my homeboy Nick last year. He was unarmed. They jumped on him and broke his neck. Hmm. My condolences. Um, yeah, until justice at gmail.com. Uh, but yeah, that's, you know, I think many 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 black people all over the world like have some thought that yeah that's kind of what to expect I don't necessarily expect protection from enforcement officers and I think conversely you have many white people say hey their idea is I'm not going to depend on them to protect me so that's why I've got my eight gabillion firearms because you know you raping niggers you know might get out of hand and you know got to make sure that I can handle things so yeah uh, but important decision make sure that we have a correct understanding uh, about what is happening here system of white supreme again even with that Uvalde Texas shooting I'm still I told you we had the person who wrote in said that they thought the person was non-white uh, about you know whether uh, Salvador Ramos is this person now deceased was he classified as white non-white talking about still learning uh, and then like I said the victims I'm not confused about that like most of the folks that I've seen they look like they would be non-white so that even like probably we talked about that last week like is that part of why there was this delay we're confused and I don't want to die and I'm not going to put my life on the line and blah 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 like I said one of the officers was shot not fatally in all of that was that part of it like man it's not like it's a room full of white students so uh, uh, uh. We'll give him five more minutes. Was, you know, directly, indirectly, consciously, subconsciously, was that a factor in all this? And or do we think if it had been all little blue eyed, blonde haired, white boys and girls, do we think it would have been the same? And like I said, this has happened before. It's not like this is the first time where there's been some sort of, you know, if you want to call it incompetence, uh, where they didn't immediately. I think even Columbine, where it was pretty much mostly white students I think they had a few black they, they even have video of one of the uh, white children saying that they had a black student and that the Columbine shooters in the 90s shot the black student because he was black they got that video segment in Bowling for Columbine in fact documentary neither here nor there I have, so I have seen this happen before and I think they have said that over the past few weeks in fact that that's that's why I think it stood out to so many people that they've seen this before and this wasn't supposed to happen again. Eh. 
white people, that's something that should stand out too. Like white people generally get very annoyed when it's been something like that and they're supposed to have revised the code so that this doesn't happen again and then it happens again. Other folks, any uh, commentary folks need to get in before we wrap things up? Probably are. Rob in San Diego. Uh, I just wanted to add quickly uh, <clears throat> about the piece that you uh, spoke about with Billy D. Williams, where he said that he didn't uh, like face any uh, racism or whatever uh, going through the movie. And the part that I wanted to add was that um, the communication between um, the people that watch movies and the people that plan movies is uh, very different now. Um, it's like you almost have direct communication. Um, so I would pose the question, you know, like if the communication was um, how it is now with the different platforms where you can, like where uh, people can comment and leave comments, I wonder would it be uh, any different? That is a good point. We did not have Twitter back in 1977 or whatever caveman time all this started with the Star Wars franchise. Uh, Pardoned apologies to any folks uh, who might have been alive at that time. I'm not implying that you are Neanderthal. Um, But yeah, we did not have Twitter in 1976 or whenever all this stuff came out um 70s we didn't have all this then in fact we didn't even have twitter and all this in 2000 when sam jackson was in the when they brought all this back for the prequel we didn't even have all this then for folks to be able to get on twitter and instagram and all the rest you coon sam jackson i can't believe you messed up the franchise and all the rest of that like we didn't have that then so yeah it is only really with like John Boyega and uh, now Moses Ingram that folks have really had that opportunity since this series has been rebooted. It's really been what, like the last 10, 12 years. I don't even think it's been 15 years quite yet. Maybe I guess it's getting close to that for about close to about 15 years uh, that they've had the opportunity to really let loose. Like we can find you right now and Coon, you messed it up. And why did you get in there and burn, burn, all the rest? Now, all of that said, there are lots of examples of white people practicing racism in other ways because they are upset about whatever. Sidney Poitier is in this movie and he shouldn't be or Bill Cosby or, you know, pick whatever it is. Um, Even Medgar Evers, they they got tons of archival footage of white people calling in like 10 years or more before Star Wars even started. They were mad just because uh Medgar Evers the great was going to get I think like 20 minutes or 10 minutes of TV time to respond to some sort of allegations and oh my god like the way what you're going to put that negro on TV and come this and, rah, 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 and all of that that's a great part of the state of Mississippi's uh history uh so I am sure if they wanted to voice their displeasure about uh Billy D Williams uh, either time in the 1970s man hate mail all the rest of it I am sure they could have you know done so maybe they did and it just didn't get you know recorded 
that does stand out though because i i guess again though the first time around it wasn't like all this hoopla and it wasn't the franchise so i guess the first time around you know and then he's in the movie from the very beginning and like i said his character is a traitor it's not like he's you know got a lightsaber and is out part of the mission and all that like he turns on luke skywalker he's a no count negro scoundrel and he's kind of a negro rapist like he's kind of making you know hey princess leia how do you like negroes that type of thing so he's kind of in the acceptable mold of what a a negro could be i could see why they wouldn't be too again not that i'm telling anyone you got to go back and watch star wars to study you know racism Eh. Uh, any other commentary folks need to get in before we conclude Okay, Josh. Well, I'm working. Oh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to email. I'm trying to search an email and have the problem. I'm type it in right now. Did you say gmail.com Appreciate that, man. I'm going to meet my lines. Just saving it. Bay Area, Mom? Um, oh. Um, uh, what is the Star Wars? So, I think I was six when it came out, I guess. And I we lived in Hollywood um, with my mom. And it was this little white girl across the street and um we would play because it was only black kids in hollywood so uh she we were playing star wars right and uh so she's like okay i'm gonna be princess leia you know and so she told me and you're you're gonna be chewbacca so i don't know what billy d went through but i know i experienced racism just being a little kid in hollywood so i don't know how he didn't Maybe he looked at it different or all that Coke 45 and Coke that they were giving him. It, it looked different, but I, I, I experienced racism with Star Wars. Okay, I'll meet my line. And thank you all. Woo, I am wounded. I am wounded. She said she experienced racism. So this, the first for, I think even though it technically is like, four if you're going by like the numbers uh in the series this would be like episode number four because they don't start at the beginning so yeah uh is 77 right uh spring of it's this t- may 25 of 1977 like 25 year anniversary how about that or what is that sorry i'm off in my mind. 55 there we go 55 uh 50 year anniversary sorry get it there eventually 50 year anniversary for the star wars franchise um yeah she said chewbacca the non-human see man not woman not i will we had our caller yesterday that was what we were talking about the uh china chinatown and all the problems that they were having with business during the covid19 situation uh but they also said uh the same thing we had our caller in florida he said that one of his white co-workers she had some sort of card or whatever on her desk and it said uh, the queen and he's like what is that oh and they called me that at my old job the queen 
She's going to be Princess Leia, queen to be. You, hmm, Chewbacca. Yes, yes, the uh, preacher who does not even speak. He just yar and yells and yar. <laughs> that, that will be like, what in the world? What in the world? Like, uh, yeah, Billy D. Williams. Like I said, like really, just thinking about his character as a no count black male with raping tendencies scoundrel like the racism is in the character again that might be why people you know hey (laughs) he's not that far removed from Chewbacca anyway so you know whatever Um, that might be why it wasn't you know as much of a big deal uh, for his character uh, Lando Calrissian and I think this was even at the time where that was kind of like they said in the report like that was kind of a big deal like wow Billy D. Williams is in Star Wars. Like, that is amazing. Like, he could have been Chewbacca and it would have kind of been, you know, the same. Even for James Earl Jones, and he's not even like, in the film per se. He's just, you know, the iconic voice uh, of the greatest villain ever. I don't know what his experience was. Have to, uh, maybe folks can check that as well. What was, did James Earl Jones, was he called a coon or anything else for his association with Star Wars? We can do a project on that one as well. The great James, James Earl Jones. Uh, any other comments folks want to get in? Everybody satisfied? Great. We will be here on Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, white woman historian on the great city of Buffalo and Western New York. We will put things in context and even ask her, like, for reals, do you think this here suspected terrorist, do you think it's possible he did all this research? He knew about Dylan Roof and all these other white race soldiers he didn't know about Joseph Christopher Monday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific book club is mandatory Thursday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific absolute madness let me know if you need a book reading is way and I mean like way more important than watching television you don't need to watch Star Wars at all. If you haven't read Absolute Madness cover to cover and check the references, you don't need to watch 30 seconds of Star Wars or any other television. Sobriety would be best like fentanyl, Colt 45, <laughs> menthol cigarettes, any other narcotics uh, that we can think of. We need sober, high-functioning brain computers to solve this problem. In addition to being sober, you are out and about. Someone is being hostile and rowdy. It is not the time to go and have some sort of verbal dispute. Exit. You should be thinking, hey, all those gun companies that made profits, this person could be one of the people. Let me give you a few bills. We're sorry, but some participants Uh may be experiencing temporary audio issues. Our teams are working to resolve this as quickly as possible. Wow. 
I have never heard that before. That is amazing. I hope that'll be in the record. 13 plus years. All kinds of wacky interference. And, you know, all the when people say that they've called in and had challenges. There you go. If we were just on here talking about TV and Star, we're going to do a review of Star Wars and Real Housewives. I seriously doubt we would have had all of these tech issues over the years. Anyway, uh, out and about, and that's important. Hey, unless you are ready to kill and die right now, this is not the time to be engaging with strangers who might have an entire armed entourage at the ready, just like those prison gangs. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on your mobile device, doing the small things that we can to stay safe and then trying as best we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of black offspring and no taco bell Eat well. Use logic. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.